This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the ultimate installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Jason. This shit works for me. It is exactly like sort of what I'd always hoped for from a Dune movie, and it's just lovely. I just, I love it so much. And we discuss the new Dune movie. This spoiler-filled deep dive into the nitty-gritty details of this towering achievement of cinema is one you won't want to miss. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts as it really helps new listeners find the show. And be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And join our Discord server where you can hang out with us whenever you want. A link is in the show notes. And now, I can't freaking believe it. But without further ado, Dune. Wow. <laughs> That's great. That's really good. That was me. Were you practicing? I was not practicing, but you know, I've been pretty fired up about it. I was telling uh, I was telling other folks in Discord that like since last night, like I've just been like screaming in Crystal's face, like, hey! <laughs> She doesn't like it. Uh-uh. It hasn't. Uh, it hasn't endeared her to me. But uh-huh. she does like the movie, so we'll take that. Absolutely, we will definitely take that as a win. Well, here we are. This is it. We have arrived. The last episode of Dune Pod. Amazing. Yeah, I know. We reached the finish line. Did not see it coming, um, but Whew. we we appear to have made it. So I just want to welcome, first of all, our special guest. Just not, we have no no guests. There are no guests. It's just no the two of us. Okay, great. This is it. Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> let's <laughs> do it. Was, you thought I was going to get you with one right there at the last second. I, you never know. I'm always on alert. Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you said his name right though. I did. If you say his if you say his name right three times in a row, maybe he appears. Tiny little point. Tiny little point. Tiny little point. Maybe it'll happen. No, that wasn't quite it. But it's fine. All right. Well, so so uh, today we are doing just a heads up for everybody. This is going to be a spoiler full review. Um, I have already watched the movie twice in the last like whatever sixteen hours or something. Um, but we are going to have lots of like awesome uh, discussion here. But we are going to get into the weeds. So if you have not already seen this film, you need to stop this podcast right now and go watch it. Right. Well, or. If you haven't seen the movie and you care about being spoiled, then you should go. You should you should stop listening and go watch it. Sure, but, you know maybe maybe you know. Look, this movie is being presented in three different like aspect ratios and like two different resolutions, and maybe one of the presentations of this movie is our description of it, and that's just one of the ways in which people will mm. see it for the first time is through mm. our mouth sounds. What is the aspect ratio of our minds? It's like a billion K. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Well, so we'll be getting to that in the bottom of the hour. We'll be talking about Dune 2021. Uh, But first, let's talk about next week on Dune Pod. It's a big week. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is a big week. So we already recorded, um, and this one, this is crazy. Like it was amazing to talk to a director last week, uh, Miss, Monsieur Villeneuve. Um, but next week we are so lucky because we have the director of the Sci-Fi Channel's Children of Dune miniseries. Yeah. Which up until yesterday was the canonical version. Yeah. 20 years ago. 20 years ago, um, really did a phenomenal job of tackling Children of Dune that the at where the story is going to unfold um, from what we saw yesterday. Um, but also, he is currently shooting right now in the UK, HBO Max's upcoming Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. A little show <laughs> you may have seen some anticipation for. Yes. It's a small genre fiction show. Oh my God, I'm so excited about that. Yeah. So that is Greg Yatanis, uh, who is going to be joining us and he's going to give us all these great, uh, or he did give us these amazing behind the scenes stories of Children of Dune as well as um, House of the Dragon. So that was really, really cool. Yeah, it's it's nice having the episode be in the future and like <laughs> that we can rely on our prescient awareness to know that it's good. Tell them about the movie. The movie that we're discussing? Yeah. With Greg Yatanis, we're discussing uh, 12 Monkeys, another movie about, uh, predestination and uh, prophecy. Mm. So we're in a groove right now, mm. a groove of prophecy. We're in God's channel. <laughs> That's right. There is at least one scene in 12 Monkeys that is like a direct analog to Paul um, in this mm -hmm. film. So like, uh, mm -hmm. so very, very cool thematically. And we are excited about that for next week. Yep. All right. Well, why don't we get into some Dune news? Would you like to know more? <laughs> news the movie's out it's out it has i mean it's been out it's been out in a large part of the world it's still not out in, in, in australia until oh, no. december for some reason i don't really understand what happened, what happened. it's like embargo I, like or it something? got it got lost in shipping it's like oh. on one of those container ships that's like moored outside the port of los angeles um and it's going great like this movie there's we they haven't officially Greenlit part two, uh, but the uh, the numbers are looking good. Uh, there, I think the U.S. domestic sales for the Thursday uh, the Thursday open was five point one, mm. uh, which suggests like something like an over thirty million dollar opening weekend for Dune. Warner Brothers is projecting thirty. Uh, the movie's already done one hundred and fifty globally. Um, it's gonna be fine. It's gonna be just fine. Mm. There was some dispute on these numbers, right? So, like, um, there was reporting from Deadline. Uh, so they described it as Dune over the moon with 5.1 mm -hmm. million on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And they had said that their reporting from distributors was that this was the biggest sales they had seen of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, but then Fandango was like, no, we're not seeing that. It's not quite as big. And so everybody's mm -hmm. kind of holding their breath to see what kind of situation we have. Yeah. But like, I mean, we know, we know we're up against the streaming issue. We know that Warner Brothers has said that they're not looking just at box office. Warner, there was someone from Warner Brothers also said like, look, like it would be kind of crazy if there wasn't a part two at this point. Like his exact quote was something like, will we have a sequel to Dune? If you watch the movie, you see how it ends. I think you pretty much know the answer to that. Warner Media Studio and Networks Chair and CEO and Sarnoff told Deadline yesterday. Yeah, he, that that's like somewhat similar. It's not in, that is encouraging. Uh, Villeneuve said a similar thing, thing though at the Q and A 
in San Francisco where he was like, and if this is the end, they walk off into the desert and that's the end of the movie, I guess. No part two. And like, you know, I was like, all right, that's not, that's not super great. Um, but uh, it's going to be fine. We're going to get part two. More importantly, like people are into this movie. Like it's like, it's clear, like just sort of like from, I mean, obviously we exist within a very Dune centric bubble, but like, People are talking about this movie online. The people that we've gone and seen the movie with who didn't really have any prior history with it are talking about this movie to me today to, like, ask things about Dune. Um, Mm. Like, it has sparked an interest. Um, It is, like, somehow this crazy, weird, psychedelic worm movie has sparked an interest, and people are into this universe, which means there's going to be more story set in it. So it's just an amazing... It's an amazing day. Yeah, yeah, I I mean I feel really fortunate uh, that we've seen this huge payoff uh, for all the work that has gone into this, um, and the fact that it's resonating is is amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. All right. Um, any other Dune news, Jason, that you have? Uh, no. It's a it's a glorious time right now. It's a glorious time in Duneville. Um, I will give a quick shout out that we are getting very close to merch. We did, we dropped this week some beautiful artwork uh, by Eugene Smith, incredible illustrator who did our holiday card last year and has done some phenomenal artwork, which you can see on our socials. Um, And so stand by, stay tuned. We will have some merch uh, updates coming very soon. Mm. I also want to call out our new Discord members since our last message. So check this out. JLM. Ishmael, again, or is this a second Ishmael? Nexus 9, Tending Turtle, Chucky, Pullins 0112, Zigger, VX, Spanky, Mr. Quizot's Hatterack, Chris 10, Kristen. Wow. Orny, DJ Pardis, Mickerist, Microcosmologist, KS, Tenmanganku, Piper 7A, Goldfish, Poison Food, X Perihelion X, Bushido 22, my old buddy who did our uh, our Dune playlist, Dravu, mm-hmm. Gfly 2 J Whale, I think is a 70 millimeter. He is a 70 millimeter, bro. Welcome, yep. J Whale. Um, Carson Sells, John C., Dan Dan the Movie Man, Sneaky Hippie, Duncanator, Paul Blartrades, Paul Blartrades, uh, Mr. Philip Roth, and the Godfather Matthew. And of course, our good friend Amazon. Good lord, that's a lot. Yeah, Amazon was a spammer. We don't claim him, but everyone else is most welcome. Uh, and I guess I was saying, like the the Discord's been popping off a little bit more lately. It's starting to have a, a pretty good vibe, and particularly now with the movie out, people want to discuss their theories. If you want to like discuss your theories about the movie in a relatively chill space, now's the time. Uh, the Dune Pod Discord is a good home for you. Mm. Totally. Um, I also want to give a shout out to our man, Stilgar Oswald, formerly Silly Oswald, oh, yeah. who boosted the server. Yeah. And well, and not only that, but also- um, A super chiller. Well, and also streamed, uh, we also streamed Aliens. In the oh, Discord, yeah. Uh, on on whatever night that was uh, this week. So that was fun because Aliens is the movie for next week. We all got together and watched the movie, uh, which I'd never done before. And it was super fun. We should do that all the time. Um, cool. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. Yeah. Everything everything officially licensed, but we're going to do um, streams of the movies um, within the Discord for people to be able to check out and have a chance to chat and like just have a, have yeah. a good time with it. So, um, Awesome. Okay, well, that is it for Dune News. So why don't we talk about just yesterday and the event and what happened yeah. and, and, and your take. So why don't you go, you go first, your impressions of the day? You know, I mean, I, I think the thing I'll say is like, I talked about this when we did our 
Mill Valley episode, like that was like a really high key event because we had to like perform in the sense of like interviewing Villeneuve and there was a lot of logistics stuff. Um, and we were like producing a lot of content for socials as well. And I, I was just really focused going to see the movie yesterday because we were bringing like our actual friends to come see the movie as well mm. of just trying to create like a good experience for folks to come see this movie with us in a relatively relaxed way. Um, and it was just great. And like, as a result, I was like sort of more, I was less like online and more into the moment of just getting ready to see the movie and, and getting folks, you know, in and all that stuff. And, uh, it just, it worked out awesome. Like, it, it was just like, it was, it was just made it for a very kind of relaxed, enjoyable, fun time where people seem super stoked to be going to the movie. A lot of people were going to the movie for the, going to the movies at all for the first time since the pandemic. Mm. Um, and that like just experience of like doing something social with people um, that you actually know was just uh, itself a trip. Um, and so it was just, uh, it was, I was so grateful for everyone who showed up and folks who traveled uh, and uh, particularly to like uh, uh, Julia and, and Drago who helped us, um, and, and Julia's mom, who helped us uh, staff the event. Margaret, her aunt. Her aunt, sorry. Julia's aunt Margaret. Yeah, so I wanted to give a special shout out. Julia's aunt Margaret, yeah. Those folks showed up at 4 o'clock. Yeah. Um, I got there at 4 o'clock at the theater. Uh, Corey was the first one there. He was there just before that. Um, yeah. But then by the time I got there, Julia and Margaret were already there. Uh, Drago was chowing a uh, cheeseburger and then came up and met us. But they ran the table, checking everybody in. They were making sure. Yeah that uh, you know everybody was vaccinated everybody was safe we had the killer swag we had the the face um the 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 masks that uh dune pod branded masks which will be like we'll try and figure out how to make those available for folks that that want to get one um and stickers so it was just really fun to see everybody and it was amazingly smooth we only had one troublemaker uh sneak into the screening we'll get to that that may that that's a worth an update in of itself that was great <laughs> Um, okay. on the mask, just really quick. If you want a Dune Pod mask, come into our Discord and DM me, and I will mail you a mask for now. Nice, because um, I've got extras. Nice, and then um, I will also explicitly thank the people who flew in for the event. Yes. So Brian and Alana and Chris, who all flew in from New York City. Brian, you will remember from our Excalibur episode, Jason's mm -hmm. favorite film we've done. Um, and then Chris is coming on. I'll go ahead and announce it here. She is coming on Dune Pod next month. It's it's the big ones, Jason. The big ones keep going. I know the big ones. I've heard about the big ones. So I was listening to our mm -hmm. our Interstellar episode, and we talked about contact. And I was just like, we got to do it. So she's coming on, and we are going to do Carl Sagan, Robert Zemeckis, Jodie Foster, and Matthew McConaughey contact. And uh, the evil virologist from Twelve Monkeys, it turns out. Oh yeah, is also in contact. Exactly. As 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 her dad. Exactly. Mm. That's correct. So super stoked, uh, super stoked for that. Um, also, I want to call out Corey. We knew was coming from Austin, but I didn't realize KK flew out. Yeah, KK. Also, our Austin, Dune Pod Austin is strong. Amazing. Uh, and they they showed out. It was great. It was great to see both of them. Yeah, and take photos and all that stuff. Yeah, Jason, your speech and 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 my comments there. So, like, what do you want to say uh, about that part? I mean, I would, I, I would hesitate to call that a speech. I think that was uh, <laughs> more, more of a toast. 
but uh, it was my it was my wife's birthday, or it was it, today is my wife's birthday. Last night was her birthday eve, uh, and so like when Dune's release date was moved, like literally her birthday, it was just like, well, know what you're getting for your birthday this year? You're getting <laughs> Dune stuff, and uh, she's been super. And like since that time, like Crystal has read all six of the books, uh, and was like love the movie has really great informed like you know has has some stuff i'm just gonna steal for this podcast today nice um and uh it's just really fun it was like it she's just such a great partner and wife and it was really lovely for her to um to have her birthday with all these people to see this movie um and then of course uh to my my podcast husband matt yes um so it was it was it was good it was it was short and sweet but and then we got right to the movie it's also nice in these imax movies when you buy at the theater they just show the movie like it's seven o'clock yeah. movie starts there's like <laughs> yeah. there's nothing it's like you know just like wheels up let's go yeah um love that that was very that was very cool that was very cool yeah yeah well i i appreciated your soaring oratory um you know you got you got mad skills so so nicely done you're blowing smoke <laughs> but that's fine that's fine <laughs> All right, well, shall we get into it? Are you ready? God, I don't know. I might cry during, if, as you do the synopsis, I'm going to, I might, I might need, we might need to pause and come back. All right, let's see how, let's see how you hold up. Uh, all right, here we go. Oh my God. Dune is oh God. a tale of destiny, survival, and revenge. Paul Atreides is ripped from his lush homeworld and the only life he ever knew when his father, Duke Leto, is ordered to take control of the powerful desert planet of Arrakis. Once there, Paul's father and his forces are betrayed and destroyed, forcing him to flee into the desert with his mother, Jessica. Learning that he is the result of a centuries-long effort to create a godlike being, Paul is haunted by prophetic visions of the danger he may represent to the galaxy. Paul seeks out and is tested by the Fremen, an indigenous people who for centuries prophesied his coming. Can he master his fears, avoid his dark fate, and become the most powerful being the universe has ever known? Or will he be consumed by the uncaring deserts of doom? I, I like legitimately, I'm not gonna lie, I actually got chills on that one. Like like <laughs> like sometimes sometimes I like I'm I'm faking it, but like that one actually you got me. I knew it was coming and it still worked on me. Mm. Mm. Well we've had a few times like I, it's been refined as we've done each time because we did the book. We did, we did the Lynch. book. We did the Lynch. We did the sci-fi miniseries. But I had to do right. some chopping and uh, and inserting whole new sections to really bring up some stuff that was very different from this version. Yes, I noticed. I felt I noticed, and it was appreciated and well observed. Mm. Mm. What a movie, dude! What a fucking movie! Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's like sort of like I, I'll probably start where we end up. Which is to say, like, this is fucking weird source material. It's an old sci-fi book. It's about a boy who learns that he is a god. Mm. And uh, there are worms. And he has to go on, like, you know, psychedelic, a psychedelic trip to discover his religious uh, significance in the world. And deals with all this weird-ass shit. Uh, 
And yet this movie somehow works. <laughs> like it works like both for super fans of the source material who are obviously us and it works for people who have no familiarity with the material whatsoever. Now, not everyone's going to love this movie and we're going to talk about things that we sort of will nitpick or whatever about this movie as well. Mm -hmm. But people dig this movie. Like this movie is being well-received. It is something that people are telling other people to go see. It is an experience that people want other people to share so they can talk about. That doesn't happen all the time in culture. It happens more rarely now that we've moved away from monoculture and big temple experiences. And when it does happen, it's usually for something like Marvel's, you know, a Marvel movie or something gigantic for it to be about this weird ass book is amazing. Uh, and it's, it's just a great movie. It's just a it's just a really great movie. I think it's funny because you had talked about you were worried about like this is a thing that has sandworms and stuff and like that's like by far not the weird part <laughs> of this movie. Yeah. Like there are worms uh but it's all of the stuff with Paul and the prophecies and uh and yeah. the future I think that ends up becoming um really different from what we are used to seeing um in in these kinds of films. Yeah, and so like I, I think that's my other like sort of top level note, which is we talked about in our reaction pod, like what are the analogs for this movie? And we spent a lot of time talking about like Fellowship of the Rings because that's like a landmark experience for a lot of people who went to go see a fantasy movie that like took them into a world that like they had not either not seen before or had only read about. And it was just mm. like all consuming and they wanted to talk about it and the things they loved about it and they wanted to see more of it and so on. The the other the other examples like that are you know obviously the Star Wars movies but like folks also forget like sort of how Titanic no pun intended Avatar was um, right. when it came out uh, I mean there's a reason why it's the you know the most commercially successful film of all time mm. the experience of going to see the movie was like this thing that like transported people and there was this like whole thing about like people felt blue you know pun intended afterwards of because they like, you know, we're no longer Lucid in that dreaming. world. Yeah. yeah. And there's this whole thing that like, you know, really happened. Now, the the thing is about this movie is that it does have those spectacle elements, like those big set piece spectacle elements. However, as we've been talking about it more, I unfortunately need to credit H by identifying like the right parallel in our reaction episode, which is that it really is more of like a, a DeMille type spectacle like the mm -hmm. closest analog for this movie i believe is the 10 commandments like this is like a big quasi-religious spectacle about myth making mm. uh and the power of myth making and culture and the power of movies as myth making engines uh and that's just a different type of thing than those other analogs those other more recent spectacle analogs so it's it's a it's a wild time mm. For me, the biggest takeaway that I had in my second viewing was I spent the whole time in the first viewing just consuming the stuff that I hadn't seen yet. And so mm -hmm. being constantly distracted by like, oh, this is new or this is different or, oh, shit, they didn't say for the father nothing. Um, mm -hmm. And so kind of reeling for 30 seconds trying to catch up to what I'd missed because I had like got triggered by something. So this time I was able to just really sit back and watch it. And then also, I mean, it's like, there's been so, it's been said so many times, see it on the biggest screen, IMAX, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But it was an, an absolutely staggering experience just sitting there um, looking at that, you know, five-story tall screen 
um, and having this just massive, just like blasting experience. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah, I think that's right. Do we want to talk about the IMAX-ness of it at this juncture? Um, let's hold off on that for just a little bit, right. I think. Let's, we'll get to the okay. Spice Harvester scene, and that'll be a good time to, to talk about that. But I do want to just call out from the very beginning, uh, you know, it goes, it goes to black, and you have that. Yeah, yeah. And this plays out. You have the, the text, dreams are messages from the deep. That in itself is intense. But also, you have that black screen and the sound, and then it's just the logos. It's like the Warner Brothers water tower and legendary yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But it really sets a tone to open this movie. I think this is a baller move. Uh, he get, First of all, he gets, his, he gets the starter car throat singing in front of the production company logos. He gets... <laughs> Which I think we'll cut is just, you. We will cut you. Which I, I think is a. I think that says something. That's definitely a statement about something. The other thing is, is that Dune is, of course, a book that, among other things, is well known for having each chapter um, started with an epigram. Uh, mm. Most of them in the first book from Princess Erlon. and for Villeneuve just to be like, you know what, I'm gonna have my own fucking epigram before the start of this movie, uh, is is quite a statement. I think it's like you know, it's a nice it's a nice head it's a nice nod to the book fans um but then also i think this quote is a very important declaration of intent uh both because the importance of dreams and prophecy in the movie which is the most significant thematic level of the movie mm. but then also this point i was making about you know old timey spectacle filmmaking like he is also and his insistence upon people seeing it in the theater is also part of his project, which is to insist on how movies as a form of dream making are a, the experience of going to the movies is a unique form of, of dreaming, uh, of, of collective dreaming. And that, you know, this is this experience of going into this movie, um, is, is part of what he's trying to, to trigger and he's trying to trigger that level of awareness in folks, which I think is cool. Very cool. The the part that it made me think of this idea of messages from the deep in our second episode, we were talking about the religious undertones of Dune and you were um, going into detail on uh, Tao mm -hmm. and that notion of, you know, the other side that the Cuisinatera right. can touch being this dark boiling energy or whatever um, from deep below. So like that, that feels like that's the part that's speaking to me. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I feel you. Mm. Well, so we said from the beginning, you know, in in Lynch's Dune, famously, um, you know, you had you had De Laurentiis shot Irulan talking with her big opening intro that was very boring and and whatnot. So here we have Chani instead giving this intro. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low, rolling over the sands. You can see spice in the air. And it's all intercut with action. And that's the part that Denny does. He infuses all of his exposition because um, there's multiple exposition points, but they always have something happening on screen that's drawing you in as you're doing that. So I thought that was so smart. Yeah, and I, I have to, I know you said you wanted to talk about this uh, at a different point, but 
I immediately noticed the, the IMAX viewing is my third time seeing the movie, but my Let's first time seeing it in IMAX. Sure. I immediately noticed that like, oh shit, like this is full frame. Like the 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 mm. scenes of the Fremen attack on the Harkon and Harvesters is just all of a sudden like full frame, even though I've seen this shot now, I've you know, four times or whatever, it's it felt completely different seeing it in that um aspect mm. ratio and at that scale. Um and sort of just like I don't know, conditioned my nervous system to receive the movie in a different way this time around. Amazing. Amazing. And yeah, so I guess there's like, there's the 190, um, there's the 239 to one, there's the 143 to one. So there's all these different frames. And again, our understanding is that they shot this on like super high resolution digital cameras so they can basically just crop it as necessary for the different things. But right. But to make that work and to have images that are visually arresting across all those different formats is very powerful. Very, uh, it's, it seems like a wild uh, level of detail you'd have to coordinate. I want to call out Nelson talked to just while we're like, let's just go in on the IMAX. Nelson was talking about the fact that, um, especially in the final uh, 30 minutes of the film, there's a lot where it's, it's, it's before the sun is up. Um, so you have some nighttime and it's really dark. Uh, but beautifully so. Yeah. Um, and that really worked very well on that on that screen. Yep. It looked really it looked really good. My other note, just the way the tempo of the drum, like it starts slow and then it's just inexorably building as Chani is talking, and you know the fight with uh, the Harkonnens again. One, Raban is marching with his whip and standing in front of thousands of Harkonnens. Just holy shit, man! It's it is mm-hmm. a wild opening. Mm-hmm. It, it is. I mean, and it's it's doing a lot of exposition. Uh, obviously, in this in this opening, you know, you're establishing who Chani is. You're establishing who the Harkonnens is. You're establishing who the Emperor is. Like you know, you're establishing the spice. Like it's a lot. Like you'd, I, I assume, audiences who had no familiarity with it whatsoever would have to, you know, kind of come back and uh and, and sort of put that together again. But I mean, from a from my perspective, like it just works. It's a, it's such a great way of introducing so much of the movie. I'm going to shout out my neighbor, Kathy, uh, who had no experience with Dune whatsoever. And she said she totally felt like she was with it the entire time. Nice. She got all of the, the themes of the prophecy and the danger of the messianic part. She's like, yeah, she's like, all of that came through. The only thing she didn't get was the slow blade. Like literally, that was the only thing that she felt she didn't understand. Yeah, um, and I I explained it. She's like, "Oh, cool, got it, makes sense." That's great. I'm glad you were there. I'm glad you were there for her. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then we cut to Paul, um, and we have we have the breakfast scene. And just before that, though, can we just shout out the glow globes? Really strong glow globe design. It's the first time I was like, "Oh Did yeah." You notice the patterns on the side, like the yeah. Intricate- I did this time. I did this time. Holy shit, man. I, it seemed that it's the first time where I saw it. I was like, oh, that actually would be a useful piece of home decor. Like you'd have <laughs> like this just kind of like floating around. Um, yeah, really cool. Caladan looks dope. I noticed this time um, they've got really good furniture on Caladan in general. Like a lot really of good, good woodworking, really mm. quality carpenters on, mm. on Caladan. A long tradition of artisanal uh wood furnishings um the dinner table looks awesome uh the table that they use to do the scroll signing which we'll talk about in a minute really beautiful table i assume a custom built scroll signing table yeah and all of their crates that they use to pack up all their shit very good really top 
top level movers they have on Caladan. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was really, we've talked about the fact that the sculpture of the bull, um, the bull's head up above doing a lot of heavy lifting, um, thematically in, in this film. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a second. The bull and the bull, right. You know, the bull and the fact that the grandfather of Paul is killed by a bull is mentioned maybe more in the movie than in the book. Like he, like it is a routinely through inserts, like, you know, Paul's later, the night before the raid on Arakeen, Paul's looking at the statue of the bull uh, and and the bullfighter in his room. Uh, there's lots of shots of the bull um, right before Leto dies. Um, I, I mean, I think what this is doing is establishing, I think partly what this is doing is establishing the notion of fate. Um, yeah, of just like, you know, that, yeah. yeah, well, like there's that there's, you know, that you're a Duke, but somewhere out there, a bull is being born that one day is going to gore you, mm. uh, because you know, you took on adventures. Um, and so I, I, I like that. I think it was, that was, I mean, I think that's one of the things that villain Villeneuve does so well is both the grand inhuman spectacle scale of things. Uh, and then also these really beautiful insert shots of a detail of a knife or a bowl or a statue or whatever, or a table. Um, like that combination is uh, very compelling to see done on the big screen. It's also not by accident. So the, in this scene, it's it's at breakfast where she, he's going to use the voice and he tries it once and it doesn't really work. And then she tells him to, to you know, do it again. And it gets, everything gets completely silent. Yeah. And that's where yeah. you have the look of all of these different pieces. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. then Paul drops the voice Give me the water. water. And it's like, yeah. holy shit. Um, because he has drawn from inside and from his, you know, from his lineage in order to muster that, that power. Um, so the Herald scene, I just want to say is spectacular. The ship mm. coming down the landing. I do want to ask a question about the carpet on the ramp inside the ship. Mm. And then also the carpet running across to where Lido is. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the Spacing Guild's budget for carpets? There's a, I mean, again, like the tapestry, the the tapestry union in the Dune universe must be killing it because they have like the huge Atreides hawk carpet on the arrival scene. Yeah, uh, on 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 Arrakis. Uh, yes, and like that carpet has to withstand. 180 degree temperatures and like a bunch of, you know, erosion by sand. So it's a robust, the carpentry science has come a long way in 30,000 years. In Dune Imperium, the role-playing game, you get to choose your house and you build your own. I you, choose carpet. You design it and you choose what your specialty is. It might be assassination or it might be music or it might be whatever. Tapestry. Like the, the, that's it. Like we should do the carpet family. That's our, that's our. Yeah, game. absolutely. Amazing. Um, so as they're arriving and you have all the spectacle, I love the idea of like, how was the carpet agreed upon and the, the bet the, the, you know, you know, that desk was sent in in advance for signing and everything was negotiated. How much will it cost them traveling all this way for this formality? Three guild navigators, a total of 1.46 million, 62 salaries round trip. Mm -hmm. That felt cheap to me. Well, cause the, cause the, like just in terms of conveying it. Cause the Harkonnens are taking out. 10 billion solari every year from that's the only other met that's the only other number we have right and so right. they're taking like a ten thousandth so it costs like a ten thousandth of the annual profit gdp of arrakis that seems pretty expensive i mean like if Ara if that's all the money i you're right in that it's not like 
uh, it's not a crippling fortune. Yeah. But it still seems like if it's a 10,000th of like the GDP of Arrakis. Um, that's fair. That seems pretty, that seems pretty robust. Okay, that's fair. I guess just the the yeah. the trade the trading value the the Solaris are are extremely extremely valuable mm. um, to just be one point six million. All right. Well, and just the shot of the imperial representatives of the imperial court, the spacing guild, and a sister of the Bene Gesserit, like also there. <laughs> uh, I love I love the way that the spacing guild looks. I love I love that the the gas helm like their the breathing sounds. Glowy. Yeah, those guys look good. Uh, I love, I love the fact that the Imperial court, you can't see their faces for some reason. Don't know why. I think right. that's great. It makes me ask questions. Want to see the emperor, want to see the Imperial court. Very curious. Um, and yeah, and the sister of the Benny Gesserit, it's a real frosty one, man. She's just not, she's not here for a fun signing ceremony. She's here to just scowl. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This we scroll, love the scroll, this, the <laughs> scroll has leaked online, not leaked, but people have like posted online and it's in this, you know, conlang that they use. That's apparently a phonetic alphabet. Like, so you can just translate it letter for letter into English. Mm. Um, and, uh, part of the text that's in the scroll is a, a beginning is a very delicate time, uh, mm. which is pretty sweet. I, Particularly love though the mechanism of the unfurling of the scroll, like the like you know it's clearly got some like kind of retractors. Mm-hmm. Jesus, I need a I need a scroll guy. The herald made sure that he got that seal. So like we've talked about in Ansan D notaries, extremely important uh, to yeah. Denny. This is so it, this it is, continues. This, the, yeah, this is the apotheosis of Denny's notary <laughs> fetish. The guy did not put on the spinny hat uh, to do the... He's great, though. The guy who played the notary, really, one scene, but killed it. Just crushed his scene. Yeah. So, it's done. It's done. Woo! He was electric. Amazing. That guy That guy was really, really fantastic. So, we go from there to great shots of Paul and Duncan. Uh, so, Duncan coming back from uh, from test flying um, ships. I like the idea that different ships, like you don't use ornithopters everywhere. Um, so, that might yeah. be an environmental issue. Like maybe it's too dry for uh, for the Caladan style ships to fly on, um, on Dune or something. I don't really know, but I love that ship. Crystal leaned over to me and was like, is that a thopter? And I was like, no, the thopters are coming later. But I'm mm. glad you're asking. This is cool. Mm. And then we get Momoa. Then we get, so let's let's get into it. Like he, I think, immediately has a really powerful presence. And I appreciated he's got the bigger beard and then the smaller beard and then shaven later. Um, yeah. But I was not, uh, I did not originally grok the idea of him as Duncan, but I thought he was really wonderful. I am obviously a big Momoa fan because of his work on the hit Apple TV Plus series C. Uh, oh, really? But oh, yeah, it's it's delightful. People should watch it and listen to my new pod, C Pod. Um, he uh, he, I think, is one of the best performances in the movie. I think his, his Duncan Idaho is fucking fantastic. He sells like that. He's an amazing ultimate badass fighter. That he's you know incredibly loyal to the Atreides. He uh, he, you can get why he was able to like get in with the Fremen. The fact that you like him helps you understand the Fremen even before you meet them. Like it's, he's, he really is a key part of this whole thing. And all of the previous Duncans that we've gotten are really just platonic shadows of the Momoa oh, yeah. Duncan. Oh um, yeah. 
Like the Momoa Duncan is awesome. Uh, and it's it. clear. It's also fun. Like just how much Jason Momoa just liked playing Duncan Idaho. He clearly liked this job a lot. He's like made a movie about how much he liked it. Um, and I just love that. I love that. Like he was this into this role. Absolutely. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And so in the trailer we had, you know, Paul telling him about the dream of seeing uh, Chani, but here Paul says that he has a dream of seeing Duncan dead. And Duncan says to him, listen, dreams make good stories. Everything important happens when we're awake. That is like, Mm -hmm. that's not in the book, right? Mm -hmm. That's an, that isn't an invention. That is like one of the best lines I've heard in a, in a movie in a long time. I don't know. I didn't hit me. To me, it's icon. It's iconic. I, I was. I loved it. Okay. I'm glad it worked for you. I'm. I'm happy it worked for you. Uh, I. I. For me, I was just like, okay. I. It didn't. It didn't sort of resonate as strongly. I also think it's somewhat, somewhat counter thematic. Um, like I think we're ultimately meant to believe that Duncan is mm. like. I don't know. Not wrong. Uh, but like that. There is actually that dreams actually are more important than Duncan realizes with by saying that. Mm. Um, that dreams. This is a movie in which dreams both are important. in the in the plot and with the director's intention about the type of movies creating are the most important things in the world. But it's what you do. It it is how you like ultimately react yeah. to it, right? Paul's yeah, having I, those dreams, and then he has to choose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he has to choose what he's going to do about it. Yeah. You raise a good point, though. Yeah, no, I, I, dreams are messages from the deep. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. That's smart. Um, so now we have Paul and Lido. I love this moment. I love Lido saying that you know he had been a pilot, and Paul's reaction to that, and and mm-hmm. when he touches Paul's face, like the smile that Timothy gives to him. Yeah, it's just beautiful. There's a this this Tim. I I need a we need. It's a shame catcher can't be here because we need our chief. Uh, Shalemicist to weigh in on this because I feel that there's a smirk that Chalamet gives several times in this movie. The first time you see it is here where he gives this little like half smile Mm. and he does it a couple more times in the movie that I don't know if that's like a go-to Chalamet move or if it's like specifically for this character, but it's good. Like it's a good, it's a good move. If you have that, you can pull it off. Yeah. It's great. Yes. I like it in that scene with Lido. I mean, so let's just get it out here. So, so disgraced producer Ian DeBorha, um, you know, oh, has said this that, is, it's that vendetta time. It's, it's time vendetta for, time. It's time. Uh, yeah, this, I'm right. invoking Conley uh, yeah. on, on Ian the DeBorha. Amtal rule. He basically, well, he just said that Timothy doesn't work for him, and and yeah, I don't get that. Like, I don't see any world in which Paul does not work. Um, I think Timothy is amazing in this i mean you you can have your opinions about whether or not timothy works or not but i thought it was a little aggressive of ian to just delete his whole imdb page like that seemed un, uncalled for with great power comes great responsibility mm. all right so now we have paul and gurney um so we have this weapons master see i love the fact that he asks paul asks are you the new weapons master and he says with duncan idaho gone i have to do the best i can like they're sort of like there's some nice little efficient storytelling happening there. Yeah. You know, and like Gurney, I think is like one of those things, uh, that we didn't get a lot of Gurney in this movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, Denny has said that his biggest regret, the thing that he cut that he's most regretful for cutting is a scene of Gurney playing the ball set. Cause he feels it's somewhat heretical to not to have a Dune movie in which Gurney doesn't play the ball set. Cause it's so central to his character. Um, uh, and I'm just like fine with whatever cuts he needs to make. And his Denny's point is, 
it's going to be in part two. Uh, you get more Halleck in part two. Um, yeah. That being said, I, I like the Gurney-Paul relationship a lot. I think the uh-huh. Gurney-Paul relationship is really fun. And I think that like the way in which this movie does its opening act of you get the relationship between Paul and Duncan, you get the relationship between Paul and his father, you get the relationship between Paul and Gurney, uh, and it's just this like you you just understand sort of like what the main character's family, all of these men are you know members of his family and and how he relates to each of them, and that really just sort of helps ground that character immediately. And I, I like all the shit talking that continues between them uh, throughout mm. the movie. Yeah. And the 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 way they go at each other. I mean, first of all, you have that one of the few lo- the, one of the few jokes in the film where <laughs> Gurney throws the knife at him. That's rude. That's rude. Yeah, it's one of the three jokes we get in this movie. That's it. Um, but the shields. So compare and contrast to Lynch's shields. I obviously it's a better visual effect than, than the than the cardboard box shields in Lynch's Dune. Um, I like the idea that like it's like oh blue means deflected and red means loud and like red is also the color of blood so that makes sense that makes it a hit. I will say that I think that the shield fighting kind of detracts from some of the action of the movie overall. Um, like. Uh, it's better when it's slow, like at the beginning of this fight, but when it picks up speed either between the two of them as that fight progresses or particularly when uh, they're fighting the Sardaukar later uh, during the Siege of Arakeen or Duncan's Last Stand, uh, it's a, it makes it hard for you to... It makes it a little difficult to follow the action because all so much of it's getting blurred out by the shield effects. Um, and then when you get the duel at the end between Paul and Jameis, you're like, oh, that's what a fucking knife fight looks like in this world. Like, that's a really fucking good knife fight. Mm. And I was just so grateful to, like, see that without the the shields um, that, like, I think it's, I think it detracts a little bit from uh, some of the flow of the, of the movie. Uh, I, I'll second that. There, there's a moment when, when the beautiful moment of the Atreides doing, like, a 300 maneuver on the steps um, and the, yeah. the Harkonnens are, the Harkonnens are coming up from the bottom and Sardaukar are coming up from the top. Um, there's a moment where they meet each other and there's so much shield sound. You just don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't really hear much of, of what's and the, going on. And that moment's really cool because the Atreides, I mean, that's like a cool moment because the Atreides are like doing Very their cool. phalanx formation. It's like sort of an homage to the fact that it's sort it's potentially a callback to the fact that the Atreides are Greek, like you know, are meant to be Greek. Yeah, exactly. And they're doing this like hoplite formation or whatever. And so it's like that that all is cool. And then it just all becomes like a and the falling of the Sardaukar from you know the the Sardaukar slow fall is a is a is a okay. great love, level seven spell, but like the the shield fighting <laughs> is is rough. All right. I I thought it was beautiful. I thought in isolated uh, bits, it was extremely effective, um, and I liked it a lot. Yeah. So um, we transition as as Gurney tells them that the the um, you know the the, the Harkonnens are brutal. They're brutal. Which some people have a bit of a problem with that line reading. In your eyes. I need to see it in your eyes. You never met Harkonnens before. I have. They're not human. They're brutal. They think it's a little, a little over, over the, the top. top. I think it's a little I over the top. I liked it. You did? I liked it. 
I, okay. I, I've, I liked it. I didn't even think of it as being too over the top until people were like, that's a little much. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> that was a little moto panikeku for me. <laughs> moto panikeku. Moto panikeku. Yeah. <laughs> They're brutal. These pancakes are brutal. <laughs> so, um, Raban, his reaction where he is just screaming, that was a line read that I was feeling big time. Uncle, how can we let this happen? How can the emperor take everything we built and give it to that duke? How? Like, I thought Raban was amazing in that scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, Raban's, Batista's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. It's so good. That whole yeah. thing is great. The, I love this. I love the introduction. I love the introduction. The introduction of Gidi Prime and the Harkonnens. And the Baron Harkonnens is taking a nice, like, Colonel Kurtz Schwitz bath. Yeah. Uh, and just having a nice little steam. Uh, just open up his pores uh, while, like, 17 people watch. Do you think it was too much of an Apocalypse Now shout out? It's pretty on the nose. I mean, like it's it's so it's pretty aggressively on the nose as an. I mean, once you've now. got once you have the once you like got this. that exactly because they could have done it without the ins without the close up of the hand yeah. and yeah. mopping away the sweat. But I think once you get there, you're everyone's gonna <laughs> read that as Marlon right. Brando. Um, but love the design of the shower. Um, Amazing. You know, Nelson points out. In, an, uh, in a post that he made that like he he found that there was a lot of homage to the lynch dune uh, which i don't know how conscious that was on villeneuve's part but i do feel like in this scene you do get like i mean the harkonnen ablution bath time rituals is like a big part of obviously how the portrayal works in the lynch movie also the fact that like all of those harkonnen scenes take place in a four-sided room with no ceiling um right. is like a big defining quality of those scenes with some oil bubbling on the in, in like trenches on the floor or whatever. exactly and a lot of a lot of oil which is from the book the oiliness of the harkonnens is from the book but like the like it did seem to it did all seem to be uh informed by the some of the production design um of the lynch movie which i liked mm, i'm into it so now we get to the Gamjabar, right and in the book the Gamjabar is the opening scene it's the, the, the literally the first chapter right. is the, the first thing that happens um but we we do have first this beautiful little introduction of Yui, and I love like Yui taking his his like vitals, just using his fingers. Yeah, just Reiki. Like, you're you're Reiki internal. <laughs> you're, you're Reiki internist. Like they don't even have they don't even have a fucking stethoscope anymore. Those got burned in the Butler and Jihad. All you got is, is <laughs> just a vibe a vibe check. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I'm gonna need a little bit more than that if I go in. I'm like ah. Uh, We've got like, you know, I'm like where I need my annual checkup and he's just sort of giving me a like, oh, yeah, I, <laughs> it's not going to work for me. His heart um, is strong. Yeah. His heart is strong. Uh, yeah. Did we get before, does it happen before or after that we actually see the Benny Gesserit ship? It's before that scene it's the, where we see just the actual before, the, the arrival? The, where yeah. they, the arrival, they come, like, first of all, the Amazing. design of the Highliner, the ship coming down, the scale yes. that's portrayed in that. Then also another IMAX detail that scene, most of the IMAX stuff is in the desert, is exterior shots in the desert. And mm -hmm. as you'll hear, if you listen to our reaction episode where Matt presciently asked him about using aspect ratios, he talked about wanting to use IMAX and the verticality of IMAX, particularly for the desert in a way of you know, conveying scale and intimacy in the desert. And for dreams. And in yeah. dreams. And in yeah. dreams. 
However, he uses it in this Benny Gesserit arrival scene, which is actually a really funny choice because this they arrive essentially in like a black box set. Like it's all you really see is the outline of the ship, the stones that they're walking on, the characters the, at this like very small light. scale, and, 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 and this giant black backdrop. But he goes full IMAX for that to convey the, like the solemnity of this procession, um, which like, again... Like seeing this movie on IMAX for the first time, like my my nervous system received that. Like I was like, "Oh, these ladies are coming." Um, so I, I liked that a lot. I loved it. That was spectacular. I just that that whole shot. I thought it was like interior. Yeah. Um, when I'd pre- previously seen that shot, but the fact that it's outside and the rain is happening, but it's just all going to black. We talked about that in Inside Lewin Davis, right? With Bruno, um, like having characters in the foreground and the background just kind of goes away. Um, yeah. And you have yeah. that impression. It's just powerful. Very powerful. I love that. Shit. So somebody else talked about this um, when Reverend Mother commands him with the voice. You dismiss my mother in her own house. Come here. Kneel. And the speed mm-hmm. at which he is drawn across, and it, well, she's she's good. She's she's put all of her ability points into the voice for sure. But this is the moment when when I can't remember who it was who said this, but they were like completely locked in in that moment. That was like their first real holy shit moment in the film. Oh, okay, and to me, it was just incredible. Like I absolutely. Oh yeah, it. yeah, she's great. Uh, Charlotte Rampling as Reverend Mother Guys Helen Moem, and like her use of the voice, you don't even really get to see her face. She's doing a lot where you can't even really see her act. I mean, you can't even really see her. Um, but she's mm-hmm. so convincing as an authority figure of power. Um, dope room uh, that they're in. Just one of the many great bookshelves. His, yeah, the, good. The, the, the boots, the boots up to the knees or whatever. Just like mm-hmm. looks so great. Yep, that's great. Fuck. Yeah. So when when when. You know, he puts his hand in the box. He's got pain um, is online. And in the book, it's obviously Paul who is doing the litany of fear. So let's talk about the, right. des- the decision to make Jessica out in the hallway. She's the one that's doing the litany of fear. And he kind of piggybacks on it so that that's like a way of getting into it for the audience. That to me was was very cool. Yeah. So, okay. Now is an interesting part to discuss Jessica let, let us speak on Rebecca Ferguson and her performance in this scene uh, and the uh, sort of bifurcation of opinion that we've observed. Um, so Jessica is like outside uh, and like is really having a panic attack until she, until she remembers the litany against fear. Um, this is, I think, a good example of sort of like the differing opinions that folks have had about the her performance as Lady Jessica. I think that, she's one of the two strongest performances of them. I think, I think Rebecca Ferguson essentially wins the movie. She's so good in this. And, and a lot of critics have remarked to how good she is in the movie. I think she does a tremendous range of things and is, as triumphant. Um, we found at our viewing that a number of, uh, the women who came and saw the movie, uh, with us really did not like Jessica's or the portrayal of Jessica in this movie, particularly folks who had read the book and were expecting uh, her to be like, you know, have her emotions in control and not display any vulnerable, you know, not display any vulnerability. Um, And here she is just kind of flying off the handle uh, in a moment where she could actually be observed by other people. uh, And that seemed untrue to the Bene Gesserit um, 
uh, spirit. That was that's something that like you know, Kristen said, Crystal said, uh, here for the film said uh, in our Discord, bravely volunteered opinion on this uh, before, um, and uh, yeah, and so I, I think it's I think it's interesting how differing opinions are on that on this performance of Jessica. So so for me, my entire frame of this film shifted for the second viewing and Jessica very much came into focus. And I thought about how the entire fulcrum of the galaxy is like moving on her. Mm -hmm. She is the one who set events into motion. She is the one who has decided that she can literally create the Kwisatz Haderach. She's the one who can train that Kwisatz Haderach um, and nurture him so that he will be ready for what's coming. And it's all falling apart. Like she probably didn't expect that they were going to get Dune. She didn't expect that Leto was going to get killed. She didn't expect that they were going to lose everything and be on the run. Right. So like the amount of pressure that she's under is like a staggering weight for any human being. And as we saw in Chapter House and Heretics, like Darwi O'Drade had those moments where she would fly off the handle or, um, you know, Tam or I forget the name of, what's the name of her, uh, her mentat uh, uh, who was always pissed at her. Dortusla? Uh, no, I don't know, whatever. Whatever her, whatever her name is, the one she was always fighting with who hated Duncan. Yeah. Belanda, the mentat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would get very emotional and then they would pull it back. And the whole concept yeah. is they're supposed to have this amazing control, but there were those moments where they would break apart. And so- for me, I didn't have that as a problem. So Crystal, I was talking about a bit with Crystal. And again, like this is like one of the things that's just fun about this movie is that it's enough of a movie that is enough of a hook for a broad enough audience that there can be people who are fans of the movie and like want to talk about it and have differing opinions about key details. Yeah. Um, and Crystal's, Crystal's uh, take was that in the book, Jessica has these doubts and these concerns but they're conveyed primarily through internal dialogue. Right. And like internal dialogue is a big feature of the book. And it's explicitly in the Lynch version through this kind of weird voiceover. Which does not work at which all. Which does not work in film. And so what they decided to do in the Villeneuve movie was to externalize that internal conflict, you know, through acting. And so you see <laughs> that anguish, you know, presented in Rebecca Ferguson's reactions, which in the book exist, but are never externalized. And that does create a, you know, a, a frisson, uh, between hand, the two hand Jessicas. Ringing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but for me is a more elegant, uh, kind of, uh, solution to the problem than the, uh, than, you know, than doing any voiceover stuff or uh, any other way they could have tried to portray those doubts. I'm just waiting to see if here for the film, uh, agrees with that or not. Because I will say Jessica in Lynch's Dune, all she does is cry and, and yeah, freak out cry and, and stumble around. And she doesn't have the moments where she's really pulled it together and seems to be on top of things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, just the other piece of feedback, which I'm just going to categorically reject. Um, Crystal uh, said that she should have been hotter. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Crystal wants her hotter dialogue. I'm like, what? I'm like, what are you talking? There's none hotter. Are there so, like well she was as unbelievably gorgeous as you could possibly imagine for me. Okay. Matt we the record will reflect that Matt finds Rebecca Ferguson hot. We we and she is she is obviously a very beautiful woman. I think what Crystal is saying specifically is that 
she thought that the betrayal of Jessica in the book is like, you know, she's meant to be this incredibly sensual woman who's like, you know, uh, who, who's like very much desire, who like conveys like desire. Um, mm. And that for her, like the, the type of, uh, like the type of, performance that she you know the type of actress that she was thinking about for that was like more of like a jessica chastain type um than uh a rebecca ferguson type or um like you know like the another person she volunteered was like the woman from the woman who plays uh queen oslog in in the vikings show um like just sort of like someone who's like who's like got like a um like a, a more a more of that that sensuality to her the other part of that that she brings up is that a key part of the dynamic of the book is the relationship between Leto and Jessica and that like, that's really supposed to smolder mm. and their relationship doesn't really smolder as much um, in this book. And that Leto treats her more coldly and is just like, look, I'm not talking like, I need you to be a Benny Jesuit here mm. uh, and like protect our kid. And like, he doesn't really have those moments. Like, Oscar Isaac has had more moments of intimacy with Rebecca Ferguson in the press tour for the movie than he has had on screen for the movie. Um, and I, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, I think it's a fair criticism. All right. Well, I, I'm definitely landing on a, on a, on a big plus for, for Rebecca. I'm, I'm sorry that it didn't work for everybody. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, it definitely, it definitely did. I think we've given a fair hearing to the anti Jessica, anti Rebecca stance. I think that, I think that's right. So, so, so circling back on the gum jar, there is this amazing moment where Paul is just like in pain and really struggling. And then he basically just a starts to have some prophecy kick yeah. in. He starts having visions and he B just stares the Reverend mother down. Love and he's it. like, fuck you, man. Like this yeah, is my, I'm my time. Uh-huh. Love that shit. That's good. And that's like the first time you get that. Uh, and it, that shit works on me now. Like I'm like sort of I'm like genetically disposed to respond to that. Crystal's gonna play that when it's like time to take the, the recycling out. It'll just be like, yeah, it's like oh, it's my time. It's the prophecy. It's the Amazon line. boxes need to be broken down. <laughs> Get my box cutter, honey. <laughs> so you do have this great stuff with the Reverend Mother. As she's on her way out, she's pissed at Jessica. Um, And like all of these things of her saying, like sifting sand, we sift people and they have a program that they're running. They're ready to kill Paul because he's potentially too powerful. If he had failed the Gamjabar, like that was it. Like the universe is at risk. And if he wasn't together, they they would kill him. I don't know what it says that they decided not to kill him um, and all of everything that happens uh, from here on out. But that's at least a challenge. I think they're thirsty. Like the the Benny Gesserit are super thirsty. They think that like even though they know he's a risk, that like he's like, well, he's got that sweet, sweet blood in him. Like if we can just like, you know, <laughs> figure out somewhere to put it, we can keep this program running. Like that's like the blindness, that's like the the vanity of the Benny Gesserit. But the Reverend Mother says, Our plan is measured in centuries. We have other prospects if he fails. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Sexy. Like that. And then she takes off, and when she takes off and the ship takes off, um, the music, the Bene Gesserit music kicks in as Jessica's standing It's like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just getting blasted in the face with, like, ship exhaust. She's just going to take it. (laughs) 
Yeah. She's just going to like eat the fucking exhaust from the rocket. Love that. Mm. But then her and Paul in the mist. What about that shot of just the, you know, those shots of the two of them yeah. talking through the mist? That was gorgeous. That's very Shakespearean to me. That feels like almost like Macbeth or something like that. Totally. Like a, a character is like encounters prophecy. And then you get another Timmy smirk in that scene where he, mm. he like, who's like, hmm, I am the one. Hmm. Smirk. <laughs> Love that. So almost my favorite shot in the whole film. Ship. The Atreides ships coming out of the water. Again. The sounds. like looks better in IMAX. That shit, that, like, you didn't I didn't I didn't notice on the first time at all. I noticed it on the second time that the first shot where you see the water from above, you can see the outline of the ship coming out. Totally. The the third time when the ship bursts the surface like a giant <laughs> whale. It is electric. Winnie the Pooh dot gif floating out of it's awesome. That shit's great. Love that. Don't know why they stored their ships in the water. Doesn't make a ton of sense, to be perfectly honest. But I, I got that around. That was the plan. I've come around on it. Here's my here's my okay. thinking. If you have to be right. able to be airtight to go into space, yeah. I guess you could be airtight to go underwater. Yeah, but like underwater, you have to withstand pressure. I know. Like it doesn't okay. it doesn't matter. They just they built for it. Okay. It was a P zero. They they had to do it. <laughs> you think they're down there doing like some crazy Ivans? <laughs> One ping. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was amazing. And also just the shots of Paul in the golden hour, standing there, like watching the sunset and him walking on the beach. The thing that I love is that was the very first shot that we ever saw yeah. last year in like June or July or whatever. And that yeah. was the very last shot that they filmed of the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. They went back to Norway for that pickup. Love that. Yeah. I love in this. I wanted to call it another thing. I love in this scene. Um, that they uh like when they're leaving arrakis the i talked about the great carpentry of the atreides household before when they're boxing up like the bull's head and they're boxing up the painting yeah um it looks like it looks like they are like putting them in caskets like mm. it's these very mm. like heavy like they're like boxing away all of their shit and they just they just come from seeing like the caskets like the outdoor caskets of the old dukes yeah. on the hillside yeah and like yeah. here they are inside like casketing up their uh, all of their belongings like it really it's a really nice piece of of filmmaking once you know where the atreides are are headed Headed. Mm. so noticeably we don't have them leaving caladan we don't have them getting onto the highliner yeah we just have the highliner is on arrakis and i do like the shot the fact that the highliner is empty on the inside um, somebody asked me whether or not that was a gate versus a ship. And my understanding is it's a ship that's open in the back. You fly up, you get in, you dock, and then the ship will do its move to get through hyperspace or whatever. This is your understanding from meditating on the design of the ship or from having read something? Uh, from the description that, that, that guild highliners work that way. Okay. But we've never we've never seen them as an like the concept of having a ship that's open in the back and there's not like big engines or something. That was fucking yeah. badass. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Giant Taurus ship. So just the 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 lights opening as the as the doors are opening on Arrakis and the lights on their face, the intensity, the the uh, the shots from behind, um, and then the bagpipes. 
Yep. Killer bagpipes. Um, I think it's great that the I think it's great that they brought their own bagpipers with them. I think mm. it's important when you're making an arrival to to have that. Um, and it's it's great. I mean, it's 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 really really fun. Nelson liked it so much that he clipped out just that part of the arrival ceremony so he could save um, for his own personal use. I guess. Nice. What do you make of the significance of Gurney turning to help Jessica down uh, off? Off the car. I thought about that too. I was like, oh, like someone's like got like the Jessica escort duty. Uh, and she's got like her two little like veil helpers mm-hmm. getting her off. I mean, it's amazing, amazing fabrics, amazing outfits. Face chains. Looks great. Mm. So they they pop into uh, a Thopter. We have our first Thopter flight. and arriving at Arakeen. And last yeah. night, like, my jaw was hung open just yeah. watching them fly over Arakeen. It was so gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, it, I really like it. I, I do think it's, like, such an aggressive choice to be, like, my big arrival shot is going to be 100% monochrome. There's no windows on anything. There's very little differentiation of like textures or surfaces or anything. It's just like a bunch of slanted surfaces. It's just like a giant bunker, basically. So what are they saying here? Like, what are they saying here? There's just, there's no room for any kind of... There's no room for comfort on this planet. Like, this is like, you know, that there's going to be a Coriolis storm with 800 kilometer hour winds that's going to hit this... You uh, better be ready. Routinely is going to hit this base. And like, we're going to have these uh, 20 trees... Uh, and that's it. That's like the only, that's the only frippery we can afford is these 20 date palms. That's it. And this bro who's got to water them every day. Can I just, I mean, we'll, we'll hit this slightly out of order, but like they don't have drip irrigation on Dune. They need that guy. You do not like, just as a general rule for folks listening, you don't water at the hottest part of the day and you don't just dump water onto good, the sand. You like, yeah, you, that, you put water low, you know, next to the tree. This is why people listen to this podcast is because they don't just come for the commentary on Dune. They also find out about landscaping from two people who don't really do, aren't qualified to talk about that at all. Um, (laughs) But maybe it would only uh, be 50 lives if you had drip irrigation instead of 100. Look it up. Maybe drip irrigation (laughs) went out with the Butlerian Jihad. Maybe they lost that. (laughs) Disallowed. the thinking machines. Yeah. Uh, Thou shalt so, not build a tube in the likeness of a drip. <laughs> so shout out Mapes. The shout out Mapes. What is a shout out? And what does it mean a shout out? <laughs> ah, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I love this scene. I fucking love the shout out Mapes scene. Uh, I love the. I love Jessica's use of hand signs to her. Guard Valkyrie. Be ready for violence. Be ready for violence. This lady is going to throw down. I love the the revelation. Do you know its meaning? It's a make. A maker of the deep desert. When you have lived with prophecy for so long, the moment of revelation is a shock. Yeah, that that moment gives me chills. Like I, I really do. I really do feel Big it time. because 
what you see, and it's it's also a subtle piece of storytelling because uh, in the book we know that Jessica was going. She does. She's guessing. She's using her Benny Jesuit intuition and training to guess at what the shout out Mapes wants to hear. She knows the Chikopsa, uh that you know the the still knife. Um, that there's some word that's related to maker, but what she's gonna, what Jessica is going to say is maker of death. Mm. And as soon as she says maker, maker, because that's the Fremen word for sandworm, the shut up Mapes has this reaction and she doesn't get to finish saying maker of death. And mm. none of that's in the, on the screen, except that you do see that Jessica was going to say something else before she get caught off. So it's just, it's a nice little bit of business that he's doing here uh, in a scene that is, Iconic in the book, but like not the most important scene in the book. He didn't have to like sort of head nod in that way. Mm, loved it. So one of the most important scenes for me when I first read this book um, in terms of just cool stuff is the hunter seeker. And yeah. I feel like they very much nailed it. Like when the hunter seeker's little legs come out. Yeah. Little mosquito legs. Yeah. And the, the tree hologram. Yeah. Like, I felt like that was like a big psych out because when we saw it in the trailer, we just saw like the shot of Paul. Yeah, we thought he was seeing the multiverse. Totally, totally. You got me. I have a I have a nitpick. I have a nitpick about this scene. It's gonna ruin the whole movie for you. Do it. Are you go. ready to yeah, I'm just ready. in this pod? You're gonna rage quit. I don't know if you're ready. You can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. Okay. So he's Paul's studying in the room with the the playbooks. And the first one's about worms. And it says by far the most the largest creature in the dune desert is the sandworm, which can grow to be over 400 meters in length. And like in general, the units of measurement they use in dune are meters, 400 meters in length, 1300 feet, but they say 400 meters in length. But then Matt, (laughs) in a shocking betrayal Uh in a shocking betrayal, they play the playbook of the plants Uh uh, with the little mouse. This is the Uh first shot of the little mouse. And he, the, the audio of the playbook is saying, uh, we can find many different plants like saguaro, you know, bush or incense bush. And uh, the roots of the deepest of these can reach 450 feet deep. Oh, so they no. Switch, they switch to imperial units. Shut it down. Can't, I mean. That's it. Get Denny, get Denny on the horn. It's rough. It's rough. How does that happen, I wonder? It's in the same scene. Like nobody caught that. Yeah, I mean. Who's the script supervisor? It's a tough one for all of us. <laughs> we'll soldier on. Yeah. So I love that. I also just want to hit in this scene, the score is really amazing. Like it's very mm-hmm. tense getting through this. And so, um, and then also, as we've already talked about through multiple elements, but can we just talk about Hans's score in general? Yeah. Uh, it's really strong. I mean, it's very... Uh, it, it, it feels, I mean, there's a lot of like, it feels like, you know, um, a score of like religious revelation. Like it's like, you know, it's a score that's like, it feels like, a, you know, something that's like part of a ceremony uh, mm. or something that's like, you know, a, a part of like a, a ritual, um, which I think makes sense. Mm. It's so, like, just like the drums, the vocals, the Tina Guo cello stuff. It, it, Mm-hmm. When I first heard it, I was like, this is really good. And then I listened to the Interstellar soundtrack, and I was like, oh, no, 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 this is better. And then now I'm getting seduced again on a whole new level um, of just sort of, like, getting this onto repeat and driving it into my brain. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. I'm loving it. Loving it. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, all right. So we cut back to the Reverend Mother on Giddy Prime. 
and we have the spider thing. So what's the deal? Uh, I'm glad we finally reached the part, <laughs> the spider, the spider thing part of the movie. So the spider thing, totally extra textual. This was like, it, it's first of all, we just have to point out how weird this is. There's no spider in the book. There's no spider anything in the book. Mm-mm. In any of the books, there's no spider creature. Also, it's obviously a visual effects, which Denny doesn't prefer to use. Like, he would prefer not to have another effect shot in the movie, right. all things being equal. Right. Uh, unless you're telling me that's a person in a spider suit, which I don't believe it is. Uh, so what the fuck is this spider doing in the movie? Why is this here? Obviously, just on the most surface level, it's just, this is creepy. Like the Harkonnens are fucking creepers and they're doing some creepy shit. But she says the thing, she says the thing must leave. Piter says, don't worry. You can't understand us. But then she uses the voice on it and it does voice. understand. Right. So what does that mean? Part, the second level could be, I'm getting to it. Okay. Why not be patient? Okay. The second thing, as small Tony points out in chat, which I also thought about is that it could be an homage to enemy. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and the spider fixation there, which I mean, if even if it's not an homage to enemy, it could just be that Denny Villeneuve wants really to fuck a spider, spider. <laughs> like you know, like and like sometimes you're just gonna, you know, you're gonna have your way. Yeah. The third thing, and this is again where for the second time I'm gonna just blow your fucking mind. It could be Doctor Yui's wife Wana. Mm-hmm. In the scene in which he takes uh, the tooth. And confronts Leto. He says, they're taking my Wana apart like a doll. Uh-huh. Maybe what the Harkonnens are doing is doing some kind of body horror shit with their prisoners and just like being like for funsies or for torture, taking people and turning them into monsters a la Tusk. That's wild shit right there. Yeah, that's my that's my current that's my current theory is that it was even if it's not Wana that it is a human that was engineered into being a spider and that's why it still can be commanded by the voice. Maybe some kind of Ben H. Lilax, uh, uh, you know, kind of collab. Yeah, a collab. Harken and XBT. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 Harken Harken and body torture featuring the Benny Lilax. <laughs> <laughs> that is a disturbing concept that you just came up with. Yeah, you like that? You like when that? did you figure that out? Because I would never have come up with that idea. I don't know, man. I I don't sleep much. I just stay up night working on this shit. Jesus. All right. Well, good job. Yeah. You got me. I do love the silence field. Activate silence. Yeah, the silence field is good. Although you can hear them talking. You can't like the you, like the silence field comes down and they have subtitles for what they're saying, but you can still pretty much understand what they're saying. The silence field's not super effective. Maybe like a really quiet field that didn't. Yeah, test it's as like well. just a, a, it's just sort of like a volume down eighty percent field. That's right. Um, so now we get to one of our favorite performances, and I know we've been favoriting a lot of performances, but we have the pure magic that is. Javier Bardem as Stilgar. Yeah, this scene, the scene, the first scene of Stilgar, uh, I think still, I think Javier Bardem's performance in the movie hasn't been talked about that much. Um, most people talk about Momoa or Timothy or um, Rebecca, Rebecca Ferguson. Those are the ones that get the most mentioned in the reviews I've read. I think Javier is 
an unbelievable standout. Again, it's sort of the same reason why Momoa is so good as Duncan. Like, you're like, oh, that's fucking Stilgar. Like, I get it. Like, now I know who that guy, the guy I've read about many times, that's that guy. Um, Mm -hmm. Great accent, great presence. He's contemptuous of the Imperium, but not disrespectful. Uh, He understands a good bargain when one is provided. He's not going to stick around for bullshit. Uh, it's just great. He's fun. Like it's one of the few, again, one of the few like funny moments in the, in the movie. Yeah. And Leto's trying to establish some ground rules with Stilgar. But your sieges will be yours forever. And you will never be hunted while I govern here. That's very honorable. I must go. That's all I have to say to you. Won't you stay? Absolutely. Absolutely love the introduction of Stilgar. It's fucking great. And um, and then he also, it, it starts trigger. And now we start getting to the acceleration. We're like a third of the way into the movie. And this podcast is already like three hours long. So good luck, mm-hmm. listeners. But um, he, he like starts to see um, like what's going to happen with Paul and says, I, you know, I, I recognize, recognize you. you. And, 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 we, and we start seeing that like, you know, the the prophetic role that Paul's going to play in this movie. Mm. You also do have two other things that are important. Duncan as the trusted kind of representative um, establishing the bridge to the uh, to the Fremen. And also that Thufir and Leto have, bo- like they've banked everything on establishing the relationship with the Fremen and getting things under control. Um and there's just not time to to get that done. And yeah. Thufer actually says that it, it it will take time to bear fruit, which is a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. Mm. Yeah. All right. So now we've got Kynes. So this is a big deal. We have Liet Kynes, who was uh, you know a white cisgendered man in the book, um, and has been um, recast. But I don't think that's the challenge that we have um, in this performance. For me, no. Um, I think her presence is great and her delivery yeah. is great, um, but I definitely struggle. We have the classic scene. First of all, you've worn a still suit before, um, where she's working with Paul and, and checking out a still suit there in desert fashion or slip fashion. But what, here she says under her breath, "He shall know your ways as though born to them." And in the Lynch version, that's internal dialogue. That's like a classic example of the internal dialogue, which never works in a movie. But saying it under her breath in a different language works perfectly. Yeah, exactly. It works. It works great. Um, although it's a, a little suspect that, like, you know, they're obviously going to know what she's saying. Sure. I think the the problem, the overall problem with Liette in the in the movie is that the movie doesn't give her enough space to establish why she's important to the Fremen. Like we, it doesn't, it isn't quite well enough established why she's an important figure to the Fremen. Uh, and then, and you know, in the book, she is the most important person to the Fremen. Uh, and in, and separately, there's not enough space to establish why she's able to shift allegiances from the Imperium slash the Fremen to, um, Paul specifically mm. uh, later in the movie. Like there's just not, a, she's not given enough. She's just not given enough space to do that. It's not anything to do with the casting. It's just structurally, it doesn't quite give her enough room to convey that. I think that's right. Um, I will say one big scene. This is the, you know, 
them getting their still suits and learning about them. They took out the the urine and feces are collected in the thigh pockets, mm-hmm. um, which to me is one of the smartest decisions in uh, in the translation. Yeah, I mean, if you don't need to, if you don't need to say feces in your movie, just skip that. You really don't, and and yeah, it works fine without it. I still I do still have the GIF stored and saved if <laughs> okay. anyone needs it. Okay, great. Um, so now we get to what I think is probably the, like one of the very most important scenes in the entire film, which is the spice harvester scene. Yeah. And so my note starts with thopter, 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 just like love the thopter, the greatest thing. Yeah. Holy shit. The thopters are great. We'd seen this scene before, obviously, in the preview um, when they did the IMAX preview for us. Um, the action of the scene is amazing. The the worm. This is our introduction to the worm. Mm-hmm. The worm is fucking incredible. Um, the way the worm approaches from a distance. You see the waves coming. You're kind of constantly checking in on. It's it's one of the few movies I can remember where it's like, oh, that worm is like however many kilometers away, and like it keeps checking back, and the worm's getting closer, and the timing of it all makes sense. You're like, oh yeah, that it's coming in on us, as I said. And then when it gets close, the waves of the worm arriving. The, the liquidity of the sand is just so awesome. When it explodes, it kind of like yeah. explodes out before it gets there. But, but you don't you see it. Huge, yeah, you just no, see this don't. huge spray. Yeah, it's amazing. But, and the part of the scene to me <laughs> and having now seen the movie is Paul. Paul, yeah. This is where Paul, because of his exposure to the spice, has this moment of uh, this hallucination in out on the sand and this moment in which he says um i hear your footsteps old man which both means i hear you coming gurney halleck but also the old man of the desert is the worm it's this, you know it's this double meaning it's just awesome. It also it begins to it begins to acclimate the audience to the what what Paul's going to go through from being exposed to the spice uh, and the visions that he's going to have on Arrakis, which is going to be the dominant dramatic thrust of the rest of the movie. And also, if you watch, I noticed this um, on my computer looking at it today when he says, "I know your steps, old man." It's an instantaneous, like, weird cut where Gurney is suddenly there. So it is very yeah. clearly establishing that he is seeing that future and being aware of something that's about to happen, and yeah. then it does happen. It's not just that Gurney happens to walk up after that's after he's done saying that. Yep. Um, so that was so that was so effectively done, um, and then them like the sinking into the ground, which was all practical, real effects. Um, was spectacular. And then they built a goddamn thopter and hung them off the back of the thopter to get those shots. It mm-hmm. just is absolutely gorgeous. Looks great. It looks really great. And you get like the, this is the thing that Denny does just tremendously well, which is like hard to like convey um, is like, you know, the, the sense of scale, how big the worm is, how big the thopter is, how big the harvester is. You just kind of intuitively understand that. Whereas like, you know, even in other great movies, even like Star Wars, for example, how big is a Super Star Destroyer? Turns out a Super Star Destroyer is actually just incomprehensibly big, but you can't mm. actually Tell. understand that because there's no, there's very little sense of scale. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, 
And like, but like somehow here you get how all of that fits together. Uh, and it's just, it's just magical. Mm. Mm. So as they take off, Kine says, Bless the maker and his water. Bless the coming and going of him. May his passage cleanse the world and keep the world for his people. Which is, you know, straight from Herbert. And it's really about that idea of, you know, she has a plan, she has something that she's working on, and she's not convinced that Leto, you know, fits into that. And she certainly doesn't feel beholden to him when he, like, complains to her. She basically is like, get bent, buddy. Like, I don't really care. At this point, too, yeah, she's, she's like, you know, go pound sand, literally. And But, like, the the thing that, like, this sells, I think, both because of that prayer and also because of Timmy's experience of the vision that, you know, seeing, you know, of being caught in this rapturous moment, it prepares you, the audience, to receive sort of the religious level of this movie. You're, you're like sort of, you're, you're starting to buy in at this point that um, this is a movie in which religious revelation is going to happen. And it makes sense that the Fremen would have a religious relationship to these sandworms. And it makes sense that like, we're going to go on a journey with the main character because he's clearly experiencing something like extrasensorially. He's, 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 something is happening to him. Um, even if we don't know what it means yet. Mm. Mm. We have Paul, um, he has a second round of explaining the visions that he had on the yeah. desert floor. And I thought that was really smart that Denny took this out and then brought it back around so that he yeah. didn't interrupt the flow and the, the drama that was happening there. But seeing Chani stabbing him and seeing Jessica's face with all the writing and Aaliyah, like, I love that. Uh, all that revelation is great. Yeah, he like tells her that he knows she's pregnant. Like there's things that are very this and we start to understand the mechanics of his prophetic vision. He there's things that he knows for certain. Someone's going to hand him a knife. His mother is pregnant. He doesn't quite understand why he sees parts of visions where he's dying. Mm-hmm. And this ends up becoming really important. Um and I think is one of the big improvements in part that, 2. Well, yeah. it it becomes important in this movie. Um yeah. the the idea that he sees himself dying uh, and the idea of what the death of Paul Atreides means is, I think, one of the big improvements that Villeneuve that Villeneuve makes uh, to 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 the to the text. Mm. Mm. All right, so now we're going to get into it. So we cut to Salusa Secundus. Jesus Christ. I mean, the throat conductor is back. This is the best scene in the movie. This again, not in the book. There's no scene on Seleucus Secundus in the book. Um, and we know very little about what Seleucus Secundus looks like in general. Uh, and like the idea that like they've got this warrior training program that involves upside down crucifixion and like throat singing is. Well, because it's prisoners, right? It's like it's yeah. the prisoner planet, and it's yeah. like the harshest possible planet. So, in the crisis, uh, you know, provokes response uh, methodology of Herbert. That's how you create the the most fierce warriors possible, the Sardaukar. Super Viking, gravelly dudes of just like you know, it's great. Absolutely love every single frame of this. Love the soundtrack. Love the dialogue between Dusmalkian and the head Sardaukar. Could not get enough of this shit. It's great. 
I do wish we had more Piter in this movie. Yeah, it would be good. To, in general, this is a bad movie for Mentats. We don't get a lot of Piter and we get very little Thufer, but what are you going to do? It's long enough. We got we to gotta keep it moving. We'll get more Mentats later. There's still more. We could still get a nice rat cat scene with Thufer in part two. That's right. All right, so the shit is hitting the fan back, um, you know, back on Dune. We have Leto saying that, you know, he trusted Jessica even when you walked in the shadows mm-hmm. um, and is looking for the Bene Gesserit to, to protect and saying that he thought they had more time. So it, it really is unfolding kind of very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to call, we cut to Paul looking at the bull sculpture in this moment. So again, mm-hmm. I just want to shout out, I think, I don't think we name checked Patrice Vermet, who is the production designer, um, who has done a bunch of movies with Denny, um, but is absolutely killing it in everything that is yeah. happening and is such an important part of why this film is what it is. Just Patrice. Are you getting paid by Patrice Vermette? You mentioned Patrice Vermette like every every episode. Are you on the Patrice Vermette payroll? No, but we want him on this podcast. So Patrice, if you're out there, all right, get, get on our level. All right, so now we get to the fall of Arakeen. So regardless of the translation, the book, the movie, the miniseries, the movie there's always this sinking feeling once it starts where, you yeah. know, everything's fucked. And, and like my experience of seeing this, like for the first time, definitely was like such a sadness of when I realized, particularly when I see you giving out the drugs, you're like, Oh, this is it. Like, this is the fall of yeah. Arakeen. And it feels like it's like, yeah. it happens so quickly. You feel like how Leto's like what Leto says when he's like, Oh, like, you know, like, I thought we'd have more time. I thought we'd have more time. Like, I thought we would have more time, like, sort of with this family and, like, understanding the Atreides and understanding Arrakis before it all falls apart. But we do not have more time. It is it is going to fall apart for them very quickly. I, I I did struggle a little bit with having the guards being taken out first with the darts and mm-hmm. then Leto waking up in bed. I always liked the idea of, of Leto finding the shout-out mapes as, like, the starting point of this. Mm. Um, but I do love the slow penetrating dart on Leto, that was that was amazing. I was thinking about this. Like, what do we think? Like, what do we think the right technique is if you're wearing a shield and you get hit with a slow penetrating dart in the back and you can't reach it? I think what you want to do is find like the corner of a wall and like do like a yeah. bear, do like a bear shrug on it and just try to yeah. knock the dart away. Well, Duncan knocks one away later. That's what uh, I'm saying. That's on the front. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you got a back one, you got to do like a. a <laughs> Baloo from the Jungle Book dance. <laughs> That's exactly. Find a find a palm tree. Yeah. Um, so we have the explosions on the airfield. Mm-hmm. They are just impossibly large. Like, yeah. And the bomb that the comes bombs. through, slow penetrating the shields yeah. the to s- blow up the Atreides ships. The slow the slow dippy bomb is hot, and the way that like. Basically, the bomb falls in and the explosion happens and there's a brief moment in which the explosion is contained within the force field of the shield. Hell yeah. Woo! Amazing. Woo! They're doing some stuff. Yeah, and the other one that kind of like just falls and explodes, you know, blows up um, and the the giant guns that they have to shoot back. Yeah. I will say Miles Tag would never have allowed his fleet to be on the ground. caught on the ground like that. No. Okay. Uh, I guess that was another couple thousand years of Atreides evolution. Well, and you do, you also have this great Duncan, you get more great Duncan badassery in here of Duncan Hell taking out yes. Sardaukar. Um, and he does this crazy taunt to the other Harkonnens where he's like, the hell, and like, he like slaps his two knives together and like does like a point at him. 
uh, before jumping in the thopter and he flips around and like blows up all the troop carriers. That's some good. It's really some good shit right there. Unreal. Like he does a he does a thing where he like he takes out two dudes with the with his swords and then he just kind of like stands up in this perfect pose. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Swordmaster. I was well, like, that yeah, is exactly. a Swordmaster move. Thing. He he uh, he also has a. Uh, like suspensor belt on his back. He's got like a yes. little, so, yes. so he's able to do a little like you know, whatever. Loop, yeah, yeah, the mm. Hadouken move or something. Yeah, he he has mm. a he has a special move for them, and then he flips into the Thopter and flies off. Uh, and this is also I want to shout out, give a special shout out in this movie to lasers. Um, there's two great scenes of lasers in this movie. The first is here during the Siege of Arakeen where there's this giant orbital platform that's trying to laser uh, Duncan in the Thopter and it's like just slicing off pieces of building and slicing yep. off pieces of uh, walls to try to get him. And the second is when mm -hmm. they bring in the laser to try to cut through the door when Paul and Jessica are hiding. Yeah. It's one yeah, of the yeah. rare times in science fiction in which you see lasers used and not lays not lays guns like it's not like a it's not like a blast of light that's like you right. know it's shooting a, it's a continuous a laser blast. yeah it's a continuous line of yes light that's like cutting through things yeah a, a light stream that's like cutting through things to um to slice them off i like that shit i'm into that very very good well, we will call out in the book famously, Lay's guns, if they hit shields, mm -hmm. it causes a nuclear blast mm -hmm. to, to occur. So it's uncommon to use Lay's guns with in, just indiscriminately in battle. And so I guess in this cinematic universe, that is not the case because right. there's certainly like they're just going for it. Yep. A lot of people are firing lasers and there's a lot of shields running around on the battlefield. Yep. I do think Gurney kind of got done dirty like he basically he wakes up he runs to battle in his pajamas you do have the bagpipes with me But I didn't feel like Gurney really established himself as like amazing and getting stuff done No Gurney really doesn't have a lot uh, to commend himself for uh with in this particular moment like he basically does the one he does the one thing uh and then that's like that's basically it yeah he he, he leads yeah. the troops into battle and that's basically it we don't get a lot of gurney mm -mm. looking for more gurney in part two definitely raban is scary though yes he's collecting heads yeah he's gonna go out and chop people's heads off mm. so we have the paul and jessica escape um and i miss in the books jessica uses a, mm -hmm. a, a subtler version of the voice where instead of saying kill him uh, you know, she says, gentlemen, gentlemen, mm -hmm. you don't have to fight over me. And then they're like, we are fighting over you right now. Right. right, right, um, right. And so I definitely, I, I miss that subtlety there. Um, but the yeah. scene certainly works and she's it's, a badass. It's great. Yeah. I think it's a great Jessica badass moment. I'm just She's just going to kill two dudes and they're going to just move on with their business. It's funny too, because it's like mm. sort of later, you know, it's like Paul's never killed anyone before. Jessica apparently has no qualms about killing people. Like knows exactly how to right. kill people. No big deal for her. Totally. So how about them coming up the uh, up the sand dune and the shot of Arakeen yeah. in flames at dawn with the explosions going off in the distance? This is just like a big, this just feels like a big, um, like a Villeneuve signature shot of just like a shot in the desert from a distance 
in either a crepuscular scene uh, with explosions. Like, it just feels, that feels very, that feels very much like a signature move for him. Mm. So I was surprised today. I looked at the at the clock, and that shot is ninety minutes in. Yeah, it's like it's it's like basically the siege of Arakeen starts at exactly the halfway point of the movie, mm. uh, and then the siege and it's over basically. Yeah, at an hour and a half in, you got about another hour movie. How about the Baron doing his uh, Stuart of Gondor eating scene? Yeah, he loves loves a nice chicken. Loves a nice spread put in front of him. Uh, that seems beautiful. It's very Caravaggio-esque, like, of, like, Leto in the chair, like, in this very kind of sculptural pose. Um, the lighting is all very, you know, light and shadows. Um, it looks awesome. Well, I, my, my main takeaways are Yui's a dummy. Like, he should have been able to figure out that none of that stuff was going to be good. But in the moment where the Baron comes up to Leto, he puts on his shield to get close to him because Leto's saying something. And he's like, you know, we've been fighting for 300 years, cousin, trading blood for blood. But, like, your line is ended tonight. And Leto says, here I am, here I remain. Naked Leto. Leto with no, Leto, Leto's got no clothes on. Uh, he's also somewhat moist for some reason. Yes. I don't know yeah. why that is. I don't know why he's a little bit wet. But isn't that, uh, isn't that the, the Atreides, like, uh, the Atreides refrain or whatever? I'm a little bit naked and wet. No, here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes exactly. It's the Atreides refrain. Yes. It's the Atreides. Okay. <laughs> So how about how about uh once you know the Baron you know, he, after the poison gas is there, he's like the Baron's like floating on the ceiling, kind of like bouncing off the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And two guys in the Among Us suits, but with rude materials come in. Oh yeah. Rude materials. Definitely rude materials, but with deep armpits uh come in to like <laughs> vacuum up the bad gas and they find the Baron like just yeah, like a little spider in the corner. We are now at Protolexis's favorite scene of the book which is Paul and Jessica in the tent. Which is, I think, the best scene in the book. Paul's visions go ham. So you have this beautiful shot of Chani, and she has a huge smile on her face as she's walking up onto this, bri- onto this ridge. And she's like, come, let me show you something wonderful. And she leans over, and here you have the Fremen in the midst of just a full-blown assault on Sardaukar armies. All of the flipping and spinning moves uh, that Paul is doing. I was 100% here for this. The sandworm popping up in the back. Just fucking phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, so the, I, I think this is the most important scene in the movie. We, we see that Paul can see visions of the future that are more concrete than just like Chani in the desert uh, and he is now terrified by these images let's not let's not skip by like the shot of the open ship yeah and him standing there in all black yeah. with Chani there and their advisors behind them and everything that that implies yeah, yeah. and just like bodies burning uh, below like- and Fremen cheering and Fremen cheering with a with the with Atreides flags yeah and so it's like I mean it's it's a, it's a wild, like sort of break where the character kind of um, realizes his destiny, uh, and that destiny, the hero realizes his destiny, and that destiny is being presented in 
like the most horrific terms possible. Uh, like he's just absolutely haunted by it. He says, he literally says, somebody help me, please. Yeah. And Jessica says, Paul, you're my son. And there's the moment he turns to her and says, get off me. You did this to me. You better Jesuit made me a freak. That shook me. Yeah, me too. I get chills during the scene. Uh, every time I've seen the movie, I get chills. And he, the, the, you know, I think there's two things. One is like his portrayal in the tent is this very, I think this is like one of the shroomiest big budget scenes we've ever seen. Cause he's just like sweaty and like sweating from his eyes totally. and like drooly totally. and like clearly like going through it. Um, and at the same time, and, and I think, I think he does an amazing job selling that. And then at the same time, he's in his vision. You, he's got the blue and blue eyes. You know, this is the future. Uh, and he, he's got a completely, he and Shani both have this dead, just couldn't care less about the harm that they've inflicted or happy with the world that they've created of all these burning bodies. This is, this is what's happening. And it yep. is haunting. It is it is really haunting. It's a real bad trip. Um I I think the scene is tremendously well done. Even like the way into the scene of like there's spice in the tent and he starts having this like coughing fit. I think is like I love anchoring it in like this kind of physical reaction that he's having to the planet. Um and where that takes him. 100%. But I mean again, like to go where we started, like this is like the burning bush scene in this 10 commandments movie like he's yeah he's Mm -hmm. seeing he's being confronted with inexorable fate and prophecy uh and like religious revelation um but instead of it being uh heroic i mean like you know uh, you know heroic and, and, and good uh it's instead uh horrifying and terrible and 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 just the the worst the worst future imaginable it's just great just great shit and of course we love him, right? And because he's so good at what he does and we want to believe that he's an honorable Atreides. And so for that perspective, we we're like, he'll figure it out. Yeah. Like it doesn't look good, but I'm sure he can. It doesn't, though there's gotta be a way out. Yeah. There's a way out for sure. There's always going to be a way out. Um, so he does accept her consoling him, which I thought was an important part after she, after he uses the voice on her, she comes back and she does console him, but then she's asleep and it's the morning time and he's putting on the ring and he's like, yep, yeah. we're doing it. This is how it's going to work. Yeah. Um, and so I love that. Yep. So they get picked up by Duncan and Kynes, um, in a thopter. Um, so I did want to call out the, in the ecological testing station, I got super Nausicaa vibes. Mm-hmm. The laboratory where they had like all the plants and stuff was like Nausicaa's underground laboratory where she was like growing all of the spores and mm-hmm. the water's completely clean and all that stuff. I, I love that detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when Kynes, uh, you know, is kind of pushing back on Paul, Paul's like, well, look, I should just become emperor. Right. Like the emperor's has daughters. Like I, like we can avoid the chaos and I'll just be the emperor. And she says, you're a lost boy hiding in a hole in the ground. So again, this is not quite the kinds, like there was a little too much pushback of this character. And then at the very end, she's like, okay, well now I'm going to help you and we can report to the Lanzarat or whatever, but. I don't think the scene between Paul and Kynes works. Like I think, and I think it's like sort of on both of them, like Paul, both there's this, he decides to embrace his 
prophetic role uh, and accept the Lizan Algai, you know, accept that he's the Lizan Algai and use that to try to win Kind's favor. And Jessica knows this is dangerous and like says, like, you know, be careful. Um, but it's both not particularly convincing that he's doing a good job of like, it doesn't seem like he's doing a very good job of convincing her that he's the Lizan al Um, And nor is it seem like convincing to me. Like he says like, oh, you were married to like a, you know, you, you had a, a Fremen warrior mate and like, you know, you have dreams. Dying. Yeah. Combat. But like, yeah, he doesn't really do the sort of like, I can do magic shit that you will be bedazzled by nor does he sort of win her loyalty through some kind of strong display of charisma it's just not very convincing and and it doesn't and then similarly it doesn't seem very convincing that she feels swayed to his side like this scene this scene i think is one of the the weaker in the in the movies to me i think that's right i think this is the one piece that doesn't quite connect um but it and it's not based on her performance it's based on the the script there they just missed and they they missed a note Mm -hmm. there uh they wanted to have her push back one final time and i think they needed to just have a a clearer demonstration uh to make that work but what does work is duncan's death (laughs) yeah and before that the fremen having coffee great scene and then the sarda car floating down in silence and the coffee like just like in the in the dirt yeah. or whatever, just like holy shit. The Fremen just hide. They go and then they just hide and like yeah, it's great. And then Duncan is incredible. Yeah, Duncan's great. Incredible. The fight between Duncan and the Duncan's last stand is great. The salute is great. Uh, it's a. Mm. I mean, what a dream for Momoa to have like a send off like this. Just great. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Um, so then we have flying into the storm. Right, we have Kynes also was killed. Um, and I thought that was fine the the way that the way that she was taking out there. Well, that that was exciting because Kynes busts out the maker hooks, and so you you know the thumper and the mm-hmm. maker hooks. So you think you're getting worm riding at, get at this part of the movie. Yeah. And this is like I mean, so this is one of the it's things like, that the movie does great in the third act of the movie is it teases stuff that you as the book reader knows should be coming, but it doesn't quite give it to you. It teases uh the the worm writing and then it also teases uh paul being called muadib the the word muadib doesn't appear in the movie um but we which is, which crazy, is crazy to me um slim is slim is somewhere muadib yeah but we see <laughs> but we see the mouse repeatedly um yes as like a way of uh, as a way of of signposting where we're headed mm. uh and so the movie starts like establishing what the path into the desert is going to look like um, before you know exactly where you're headed, which I think is great storytelling. Fantastic. Uh, that definitely works. So we get now to the part that is the one part that don't I don't like, this like of this yeah. movie. I don't like, so they fly into the storm. They're supposed to go above 5,000 feet. Um, and they're really struggling because they're inside this Coriolis storm, which is extremely dangerous. And Paul has a vision of Jameis as his friend that he's going to show him around the desert. He doesn't know who Jameis is, but he's seeing him. Um, and Jameis says to, they must move, uh, with the flow of the process. We must flow. So he turns off the controls of the thopter and it just starts whizzing around or whatever. Yeah. Like I just thought it was too much. I thought in the book it's described as him sort of like using his feeling mm-hmm. and senses yeah. to navigate along with the storm. And I wish they had shown that instead of just shutting off the controls. It was too much. Crystal had the exact same comment. And she also like, was like, I feel like Jessica could have played a role in this as well. I was like, you know, sort of supporting him or mm. you know helping as well. Anyway, I think that's true to call out a positive though. 
this establishes the Jameis head fake where Paul has mm-hmm. prescient vi- mm-hmm. visions of Jameis being a friend uh, and like mm-hmm. a friend will help him in the desert and Jameis is going to be a teacher to him. Jameis is going to show him how to ride the worm. Jameis is giving, and that's, you know, in the speech he's, he's in the speech he has of Jameis, it's Jameis has maker hooks out and he's saying like, you know, you can't observe the process by being outside of it. You have to be in flow. This is, that's from the book. That's just a, right. that's just a mentat. Uh, uh, learning that's like one of the 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 huh. mentat uh lessons is that in order to understand a process you have to be in flow with the process. That's like how mentats do their computational genius. Um, and so hmm. they're front loading a bunch of stuff on who Jameis is before we know who that character is. So much so that I said this to you after we saw the movie the first time. I thought that they were going to. I thought that Jameis was going to live. I was like, oh, they're going to like yeah. pull a crazy maneuver at the end of this movie and Jameis <laughs> isn't going to die because we've seen so much of yeah. Jameis in these visions that there's no way that he's going to yeah. die. So I loved, I love this because it starts to establish the limits of Paul's prescient powers um, that he sees these things that aren't really the future that are sometimes possible futures or just interpretations of a future. Uh, so I like that we get that in this scene. I'm super curious about how this works. I know who Jameis is because I've been following this, right. right? I know who the actor is. And so I knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. But if you were somebody who had no clue of what was happening, you're like, who's this guy? Why is he, what, what does he mean? Oh, that's that same guy that he was having those visions of. Yeah. It just must've hit completely different. I think this is the most subtle piece of business in the movie is the, the, when Paul's prescient visions of what's going to happen in the duel with Jameis start to come into more and more focus. I think this is where the movie starts establishing something that's not in the book. Um, but is, I think unique to the movie of, Paul Atreides must die so the Quetzalcoatlrak can live. And the idea that hit when you kill someone, part of you also dies. Um, and that some, and that this is the way in which he is going to shape the future uh, and understand sort of the limits of his prescience. I think I think all of that is really well portrayed and 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 subtly done. You do have, as he's having those visions with with Jameis, um, what seems to be an old woman's voice. Yes, um, and I think it's the same voice that you get of saying, "With the, the you know, uh, Paul Atreides must die for yeah. the Quetzalcoatlus Hadarak." But in one of the earlier visions, that voice turns into Chani's yeah. voice, like it it morphs and it becomes Chani. Yeah. So I'm just trying to figure out who the hell for all of these times, like who is actually saying that? Is it a Fremen Reverend Mother? Is it? The most like literal explanation would be the Reverend Mother Romalo. Um, and that she's like, and this is like Paul starting to become aware of the fact that he's going to have access to these inner lives or some voice of prophecy that's speaking to him from the future, or you know, and, and like it would take the personification of the old Reverend Mother who leads the Fremen, who we obviously don't meet in this movie. I think that's the most literal explanation um, that makes the most sense. Mm. It, but it, it's it's also possible that it's just like a voice of prophecy internal to him. Like it's some internal voice that like, you know, he hasn't mm. fully yet harnessed yet. And that like it will come into focus as like a chorus of, yeah, future Chani and future Jessica and future him and, and who knows who else. Um, but it, it's one of the big... I like the idea of Chani. I like I like the idea that that it's a future yeah. Chani that is helping to lead along the path. Yeah. 
um, as the personification of the dream of the Fremen picking up Pardo Kynes mm -hmm. and making it real and then having it get away from her as well. Um, wow, God damn. I just keep coming back to the shot of the two of them in that ship in black. It's freaky. It's just a, that's my favorite image of the whole movie. Incredible. We should call out, we have our final view of the Harkonnens there at the spa. The mud spa? Seems like it probably... They'll probably get some good Yelp reviews, you know, like the nice music that she's playing on the... Some really rude fabrics in this scene. Like the, Extreme. the glove the glove that the Harkonnen, like, hand harp player has is, like, <laughs> is something else. Like, it's... it's Aggressive. It's the whole thing. The whole little insert detail of what's going on there is great. Uh, and then, yeah, it's a really yeah. gross bath. Disgusting. So, so Paul, they make their final run. They have this whole thing where they're running around the desert. And I remember from reading the book, there was a lot of them running around the desert in book two. There's a lot. Um, yeah. And so they did yeah. compress it. Um, but you have these beautiful moments of them, like they can see worms yeah, moving, moving around. around in the distance. Yeah. And they're getting close and they're trying to dodge and they're finally like, oh shit, we got to just make a run for it. Yeah. So why does the worm pause on Paul? Like, is this a psychic temporal? I think it's just because he's on rock at that point. No, I don't think so. I think there is a connection. There's an, I, I recognize you. Like there is something maybe of a connection between the worm and Atreides that to me reads like psychic time travel influence from the God Emperor cascading back through time. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's because he's on rock. That's my explanation. <laughs> but I do like I do like when the worm rears up and you see it do its mouth and there's some sort of like internal yeah. worm sphincter that goes like extra mouth. I like yeah. that. <laughs> Very good. So uh now they meet the tribe. We're in the we're in the final alley. Here we go here. This is it. Um and so yes, catcher, the worm is an eye. I do love the visual representation of that is Absolutely phenomenal. We meet the tribe. Stilgar says that they'll take Paul, but they can't take Jessica. Um, and she incapacitates him, although we don't get the slumping shoulder, which was a bummer. I know. A bit of a bit of a sadness that we didn't get the slumping shoulder. I want to call out, though, Rebecca Ferguson's performance in this half. There's a lot of stuff going on where she's like, look, so look, she's in the first trimester of pregnancy, which, you know, if you've right. been pregnant or had a pregnant partner, you know, is is often a really rough time, like of just extreme fatigue uh, and, you know, nausea. There's a subtle scene where she's sitting on a slope and she just sort of feels her internal organs, you know, just like realizing that she's pregnant. She's been in a giant fucking plane crash. Uh, and like, you know, they haven't slept much and they don't have much water and they've been out in the desert. She looks fatigued. They both look fatigued. Mm. Uh, and when they come across the Fremen and like it's clear Stilgar is going to try to kill her, they're both just like, all right, let's fucking do this. And like Paul takes off his shit and she takes off her shit. And she's like, you know, <sighs> guess I'm going to have to use my fucking weirding ways on you. And they house them. They house those guys. Yeah. And it's not a challenge. It's not a challenge. Yeah. It's great. I love, I love that. I love Jessica in that moment. I think it's the strong Jessica that. Uh, folks had wanted. Mm. So Jameis basically pushes back. We have Chani is is great with Paul, and you have some connection there. But but Jameis is spoiling for a fight, and I felt relieved in the moment where I was like, okay, great, we're not going to wait till they get to Siege yeah. Tabor to have this happen. Like we're just going to do it right now. Mm -hmm. um, Paul has his last shot of visions, and 
there is a part of me that like, I wish they would have shown more multiversal, like show Paul getting killed, show Paul not getting killed, show Paul getting killed in a different way. Yeah. Um, and him thinking about how he might do different moves or something, but basically the threat is there. Um, and then we have this fight with this overlay of the voice, um, saying that an Atreides must die for the Quislet's Hatterach to rise up. But I, I don't know, man. There's just something there in the midst of the fight where Jameis is just yelling at his yeah. face, especially after he punches him in the chest. And Paul is like, I am sick of your shit and I am not ready to be, di- to be killed. Like, I am not going to just like let you slaughter me. And so he steps up and he is willing to do the kill. I, I think this is duel is uh, amazing. Um, I think the actor who plays James Babs Olusamakun is amazing. Uh, I love the scream that mm. he does, which has been one of like sort of the dominant memes that's come out in the first few days of the film. Um, I think he mm. seems incredible. I think it's awesome to see him in the scene as like sinister and like a killer when we've been introduced to him in visions as a friend and a father figure. Uh, I think that contrast is amazing. Um, and it is sort of this moment where Paul has, I love the way that the Paul has this vision of him dying, this sort of like uh, lens flary sun scattered vision that he has of himself dying in slow motion. Um, you know, he, he doesn't want to obviously die, um, but he's willing to accept then the future that he wants to avoid. Uh, so he doesn't die. Um, I love how the toy, you know, this line of why is he toying with them is obviously a big part of the tension in the scene in the book. And I think that's well portrayed in, in, in this, that Paul clearly has the upper hand here, but just doesn't want to kill him. Um, this shit, works for me it is exactly like sort of what i'd always hoped for from a dune movie um and it's just lovely i just i love it so much i'm going to take this opportunity to call out ian de borja disgraced producer um who said that timothy chalamet did not carry this finale like to me when chani comes up and she gives him her blade and he takes it and he flips it Mm -hmm. in his hand and then he flips it mm-hmm. again in a way that is so yeah. confident and practiced and ready. Ian de Borjas, show us your fucking knife flipping skills. If you before you start exactly. before you start throwing shade on Timothy, let's see you flip a fucking Chris knife once or twice and like find the little groove in the pommel. Yeah, even I haven't seen shit from you on that. Even like I noticed it during the Gurney battle when he has the knife on him, he actually has two knives on Gurney's neck. He has both knives like right yeah. there, even though he was, you know, you'd join me in death, but yeah. Um so Timmy, Timmy definitely holds it, uh, holds it down. So he takes out Jameis. He is accepted into the tribe. Um, and you have this great moment where Jessica's like, okay, now you need to help us. We got to get him off world. Paul, Paul has to go. He's like, no. The emperor sent us to this place. And my father came. Not for spice. Not for the riches. But for the strength of your people. My road leads into the desert. You can see it. If you'll have us, we will come. 
unreal because it is both this honor and integrity of the Atreides people and the like, it's amazing how they could establish the loyalty so yeah. fast. Like he is just doing it. And like, it is him saying like, fuck it. Let's go get the future that like we're, we're, you know, I've seen these terrible visions of the future, but we're, we're going forward anyway. I'm I, yeah, there's no choice. We're going in the desert question though. Mm. When he says my father didn't come for the riches, <laughs> Uh, or the spice, he came for the strength of your people. I don't know if that's strictly true. I don't know if that's true. No, no, that's not true. But <laughs> it's nice to think so. Leto had said that the great houses look to us for leadership. Right. And if we can hold it down, we'll have more, we'll be more powerful than ever. Yeah. So there's definitely an aspect there that Leto is making the play for power and riches. Yeah. With integrity. And he, yeah, exactly. He wants to make partners out of the Fremen to achieve that. But it's not like he was like, you know what sounds fun is to like, have partners with the Fremen. Like, let's go see what the Fremen are up to on Arrakis just for no reason. If there's no right. spice, <laughs> it, he would not be interested in being friends with the Fremen. That's correct. Chani says, this is only the beginning. And he gives the, and he gives the Chalamet smirk. He does, but the last close-up of the film is on Jessica. Yeah, and she looks concerned. And then it, and then it turns to them. And walking. she looks concerned. Yeah. She smiles as he, as she sees him. And then, as soon as he starts walking in front of her, her face becomes concerned. Mm. Yes, she knows what's up. It's a great ending to the movie. I, I mean, as we talked about in the our previous episode, I love where this movie ends. Um, I think it makes total sense. Me too. Um, I also think it's, you know, we'll get now into like sort of our ratings and sum up. It's also why though that part two is going to be a better movie because he saved himself so much for part two. You got in part two, all of the sand writing, all of the water of life scenes, all of like the Aaliyah stuff fade. Like, I mean, it's really the bulk of the movie our bulk of the book is going to be in the second movie uh, and we're going to get the second movie now. So we just have to stay alive until that happens. Mm. Stay alive, Matt. Mm. I will find you. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, so, so I could have imagined, we talked about this a little bit on the discord today. I could have imagined this being 10 minutes shorter. Like they could have kind of tightened things up to, to try and make it a little bit shorter, but still end at this point. And I had a, I could also imagine a world where it ended after the siege of Arakeen if you had had a little bit more build up. So that was that's one of my questions or uh, you know takeaways is like I was surprised there wasn't more the dinner scene and more of the intrigue and stuff happening before we got there. It also could have been like a three part miniseries and six hours long or whatever. I think the I think the issue is that. He wanted to make it a cinema. He wanted to make it a movie. Like he wanted it to be one movie and have it like a beginning, middle, and end. It wouldn't work as Lord of the Rings, I don't think. I don't think you could do three movies that were that were two hours and forty five minutes long each. I don't think it would sustain that. I mean, he basically chooses. If you look at the book, he basically chooses the exact midpoint of the book. Mm. Hmm. So I think like I think like that's a big chunk of it is like, he's just structurally being like smart. This movie's going to end at exactly the middle. Mm. Jesus. Who would Tilda Swinton play in this version of Dune? Uh, the Harkonnen hand harp player at the spa at spa Harkonnen. <laughs> maybe. 
<laughs> just a day pick, just like pickup shot, just like <laughs> just yeah, just like be there, like kind of plucking away at some. He gets a little frightened of Beast Raban and moves moves on. She plays uh, <laughs> Spider Spider Wana. Spider Wana. That is a crazy theory, dude. You're definitely you like that. Yeah, you're in space on that one. I, I'm into it. Um, I. I don't know. Like, I think, um, I don't know what we've said previous time. I have no idea, but, um, there's a part of me that would like to see her as the Reverend mother. Like yeah. I, I could imagine her being very intense in that. The best role would be as, as guy as Helen Moore. Like my cannot, the reason the whole Tilda thing game has come up is because I've always wanted, I always wanted to see her as Jessica historically. And then later I wanted to see her as guy as Helen Nice. All right. So where where do you land? Where where are you in terms of a rating on this right now? This is a five star movie. Boom. Um. I when we first saw it, I was like, Wow. I think this is like a four four and a half star movie. I think I might like Blade Runner twenty forty nine more. Those were those were my first mm. thoughts on the first two screenings of the movie. Actually, five stars. Seeing it in IMAX and seeing it like sort of in a more relaxed environment where I wasn't like worried about like, am I going to get into the screening or like, are we going to like show our ass on the red carpet in front of Denny or whatever? <laughs> How could you ever doubt that? Like we were fine. We were going to be good. We were fine. But ANC and IMAX, like also the other thing that's happened is like, everyone's really into this movie and it's really fun being able to talk to everyone about this movie right now. Like we're in a moment where this thing that like I've cared about for a long time is like, of interest to a whole bunch of people who are approaching it in new ways and have new takes on it and find new things. And like, that makes it awesome. And like, it's not always true. Um, and then finally, like, this is a weird ass book about religious revelation and prophecy and all this stuff and sandworms. And Denny is this artistic director who's essentially an art house director who was given $200 million to go out into the desert and make this thing that I love on the most impossibly grand scale possible. And he fucking nailed it. He did it. There are things that we can nitpick about the movie that we don't like or think that could be improved. Sure. He fucking killed this movie. Uh, and he is going to, and that's great because we're going to get part two, which I think will even be better. But it also hopefully means that he gets to do all kinds of crazy shit now. And, like, I want that to happen. I want Denny Villeneuve to be able to make whatever other weird shit that he wants to do. Um, and we're going to live in a world in which that's possible. So I'm, I'm very excited about all of that. The, the Canadian Toyota commercials can wait. Yes. No, no ton de Toyota for Denny. <laughs> uh, when I saw it for the first time last week, I definitely, like, I. it was impossible to disambiguate the experience of going to see that right. film and meeting Denny on the red carpet and everything else. It was just the, the process of doing this podcast for the last 18 months. I just couldn't separate it. And I landed it kind of like four star. And I think I was like holding myself in, in, in that spot. So I am going to say that upon reflection, upon time to, to really process this and, and now having seen it a second and third time, this movie <laughs> is a five star film. Of course. It is the degree of difficulty. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel, I feel like, I struggle to say that, but I honestly feel like the degree of difficulty of this film, the commitment, the originality, the scope, the absolute ex 
the 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 exceptional execution of this film is beyond what is achievable for almost any film that's out there. I don't know, man. We're not going to go to the theater or see a movie again soon. That is like, oh, like yeah, that that really worked on all of these levels. Like, I mean, you know, like it, yeah. it's just not going to happen again soon. Um, there's going to be other movies I love and there's going to be other things I'm excited for, but you're, we're, this is like operating on a different level. Yes. Um, and I'm, and I think it sets itself incredibly high marks. It is both trying to tell an incredibly complicated story, do it in a bombastic visual style and make a statement about movie making itself. And it, it, it does, Mm. it does all those things. So like good work. Uh, you know, I'm grateful that it worked out. It would have sucked to make this podcast if it was bad. <laughs> we are heavily invested, but this is a legitimately fantastic film. Yeah, and other people could say other people could say it's a four star movie or three and a half star movie, or whatever. Like other people aren't going to like it as much. Of course, there was a guy who snuck into our movie. Of course, and in the bathroom was threatening to beat up Denny Villeneuve. Um, that guy didn't like it. That's fine. He's a he's a crazy person, but non-crazy per- people can not like this movie too. Um, but this is a five-star movie to me. Mm. I'm excited to watch it again. Even though we spent you heard it. literally 17 hours recording this podcast. Yes. I'm I want to go watch the movie again right now. Well, I, I can't wait. Sam has been um so Lorelai sent us that uh VFX magazine that has the yeah. Thopter on the cover. And so Sam's been asking about the Thopters a lot. So we are definitely gonna watch the har- the spice harvester scene, oh, which doesn't good. have any violence per se, but has a lot of badass thoptery business. So I'm looking forward to showing him that scene. Yeah, part of the enjoyment too is like we've got like a bunch of people who we can share our enjoyment of it with. So that also and contributes mm. to my my mm. starriness about the movie. Mm. All right, let's do some letters here. Okay, great. A couple of quick letters and voicemails, and then we will f off into this good night. First one is <clears throat> from Tim Ward. It says, uh, "Subject line: Dune Mania." Hey guys, just got out of the IMAX showing. Holy crap, that was intense. The visual score and even the wardrobe was incredible. From out of the stellar cast, Rebecca has my vote for best performance. Mm. Boom. It's been quite the journey listening to the podcast during the countdown for the movie. I hope you guys continue if, when part two is announced. Thank you both for your time and passion. Also, Corey's voice memos should be a main staple of the show. That guy kills. Have a brilliant time at the Private Dune showing. All the best, T. Tim, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, The next one is Dune Pod Letter from Sophie Shin. Oh, great. She has to transcribe this. Um, I guess she has the text already, but. Hey, friends, it's Sophie. I'm writing you this letter while sitting on the subway headed to go see Dune for the third time in IMAX. Jesus. Yes, the movie has only been out for a day, but I need to soak in every moment I can while this movie is still in theaters, okay? I won't bore you with my thoughts on the movie. I feel like those are well-documented and we'll probably be talking about this movie for the next fucking year on Discord. Anyway, I just wanted to say a quick congrats on getting to this huge milestone in your pod journey. Couldn't be happier for the two of you. Also wanted to give you both a big thank you, as I'm not sure I would have been as stoked for this movie if I hadn't been along for this journey with y'all. 
I'm super thankful you've been able to introduce the world of Dune to me in a thoughtful and accessible way. DunePod and the whole Tape Deck community was a source of light during some rough times in the pandemic, and I could not be more grateful to be part of it. Love to you all, and congrats, S. Oh, we love Sophie. Sophie does. Sophie is just a tremendous friend of this podcast, um, both because she does the transcriptions of our podcast so everyone can read them, and also because she helps us uh, as part of Edit Audio. But, I mean, she's also just like... Uh, great at giving feedback about what's working with the podcast and what's not and has really been uh just a huge a huge help to refining how we do things um so really great to hear from her absolutely critical part um and it's been amazing working working with her on that and having her as that next part of of the dune pod uh development process amazing all right let's get to some voicemails here we go first one from arakev Doompod, it's Kev. You know, I have 10 versions of this voicemail and they're all like five minutes long and unbearable to listen back to. So I'm just trying to get this off the cuff now. A uh, couple things about Dune. Rebecca Ferguson says it all in her eyes and in her face. She doesn't have to have a single line of dialogue and you know exactly what she's thinking if you've read the book. And I, th- I think her performance is the best top to bottom in just Dune 1. I feel like everybody else is giving awesome performances that'll pay back in dividends later. Um, a lot of people are being left cold by Timmy, which is awesome. <laughs> it's just awesome. I, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, Villeneuve is a master of the text. It's all I have to say about it uh, without giving too much away. Um, I also wanted to take a lot of time to say thank you and to send love to you guys Aww. for being the best, what Jason calls Gen X genre film. <laughs> 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 and the last 18 months. I mean, I've only been listening for like six or seven of those, but it's just been awesome. And you guys are fantastic. And please keep it up and don't stop until the show becomes the pointillist whale song. I bet my bookie it would be by season six. Um, thank you all. And I, I can't wait to talk with you and our amazing community in the Discord all about this movie in the weeks and months to come. And uh, until it's time to talk about aliens, I'll see you guys there. Thanks. Oh my God. That's awesome. What a beautiful voicemail. Kev has really been uh, a tremendous member of the community. Uh, I also, it's kind of weird. Kev's like one of those people where like we're clearly, he and I particularly just like operate on the same wavelength. Like he's often the only person like Mm. faving my joke. Uh, And so (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, And uh, that was a great, that was, and he's got great, voice production on his voicemail so that was lovely love it kev thank you so much we really appreciate it and uh and love having you as part of our community you've been an amazing uh amazing part all right listen to this one this is a big surprise and and i apologize this is over the the length limit but uh it's from a it's from a good friend who we haven't heard from in quite a while so check this out hey jason and h this is sarah chip previous guest and big fan um, I wanted to call because I just finished Dune. I when what? we talked about it before. Yeah. I tried to read the books probably or the first book a dozen times. But because with the movie coming out, I championed through it and found myself really loving the story. I think the thing I appreciated the most is Jessica's arc. So I'm moving on to the next book. <laughs> Yeah. The internet says it's Messiah and it is maybe not the best, but I'm going to start reading it and I'm excited to see the series. 
<laughs> anyway, thanks for sticking with it. And, uh, well, thanks for encouraging me to stick with it, rather. Y'all have been with it. I'm looking forward to seeing the movie this week. Yeah. So I want to say it's really funny to think of people who are reading the book right now and having that experience as a very real process at the moment. Um, so Sarah, congratulations. I, I'm super stoked that you got there. I know it was tough, um, but it's amazing that you're continuing on the journey and going into Messiah where things start to get weirder and, and super interesting. Um, so I'm fired up for you and we need to have you back on the pod soon. Yeah. Come back on the pod. Sarah, it's always great to hear from Sarah. Uh, she had been, I sort of knew that this was coming cause she had been sort of updating me on her Dune journey, but I, it's, it's, that's one of the exciting things about the movie being a success is that people are going to discover and actually push through the book and maybe got stymied before. So it's just really a great day. It's just a great day out here mm. in Dune pod land. I'm really excited about the number of people who are going to be like, oh, yeah, I was always into Blade Runner 2049. What do you mean? Yeah. Well. Blade Runner 2049 is going to be like the Paul's Boutique of, uh, you know, of the late, yeah. uh, you know, 2020s or whatever, the late 20-teens. All right, here we go. Let's let's hear from our man in from Austin, keeping it real. Doing pods. Corey, Austin, Texas. But actually, I'm in San Francisco Woo! because I just went to see the most amazing movie maybe I've ever seen in my life and with a bunch of amazing friends. Uh, so I'm really kind of speechless. I know we've been talking about it for a while after the film, and I'm really excited to finally get to hear you guys really get into the nitty-gritty of it and uh, have a spoiler-filled episode. Anyway, thanks again. This has been a really amazing experience, and I'm super happy to have met you guys in person and to be part of this great little community that we have around DoomPod. Thanks so much, you guys. You guys are really special. Amazing. It was so great to meet Corey. That was actually one of the best things of the whole IMAX experience was getting to meet Corey. And KK was also there. Um, folks who like came in. Oh, hell yeah. Cor KK was killer. Um, that was great. I had already met Corey in Austin the last time that I was there. Oh, yeah. And I don't think I, I, I had not interacted enough with KK. Otherwise, I would have invited yeah. him to meet us at uh, Lucky Robot for, for some delicious sushi. But um looking forward to getting back to austin and seeing folks over there so thank you guys both for coming and Corey, we love you uh as you know this is our last voicemail and this is a very special voicemail from somebody who is very special for this podcast it's protolexis i just oh. wanted to drop a note to say congrats on making it to the finish line the big dune release day you know, back when we recorded the first episode of Dune Pod, things were a lot different. Jason recorded in a closet with a pair of Apple earbuds from 2015, and it took age 35 hours to produce the episode. Now, you both have dedicated podcast studios, have had a ton of amazing guests, got to interview the director himself, and have grown a community that loves film and Dune. Some thought this day would never come. But you kept to the golden path. You walked without rhythm. And mm. you were rewarded seeing the world's beef swell for a property <laughs> that you have loved so deeply. Congrats on a great run and onward to part two. That was a delight. Oh, hell yeah. What a delightful voice, Bill. Proto Lexus really has some amazing styling. Proto. That was great. Mm. 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 Noted poet and spiritual advisor. Jason, let me just ask you a question okay. uh, that Proto kind of laid out there. Now what? 
we burn all evidence of the podcast ever existing and go into hiding, I think is what happens. We enter our reclusive, we, we <laughs> burn it down. Alexa, delete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> delete Discord. Order spicy six. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we're gonna. We well, now there's gonna be part two, so we have. We'll have to keep just doing it for the next four years of our life, I guess. I don't know. It's tough. And that's it for the ultimate episode of Dune Pod. I want to thank Jason for coming along on this entire ride and for another amazing conversation. You're the best, pal. Next week, we're joined by the director of the sci-fi miniseries Children of Dune and HBO Max's upcoming Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, Greg Yatanis. Greg shares amazing behind-the-scenes stories of both shows, and we talk Terry Gilliam's time travel paranoia classic, 12 Monkeys. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And join our Discord server where you can hang out with us whenever you want. A link is in the show notes. DoomPod is a Tape Deck Podcast John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Clips and transcripts were provided by Sophie Shin. The episode was produced and edited by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you.